Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. Open loops. You must listen to the open loops, a theme park for absurd beliefs and systems of integration between the mind and the creative spirit. Open loops. Best actress this year was. Who was it? Uh, your conscious mind can figure that out. Because I'm talking to you. Your unconscious mind is now tuned in to its favorite late night talk show for the shamelessly fringe. It's Open Loops with Greg Bornstein. Conversations that bend. What's going on, loopers? Should I let the song just play out the entire time? I love this theme music. Let me think Ronnie McGilvery at the top of the show. He's the one that wrote this song. A 33-degree mason that is a real-life alchemist, writes conscious music. He knew what kind of music I wanted. Thanks, Rodney. And thanks, Zero Boy, for the pre-theme music. For those who don't know what this show's about, it's really about you and your sense of wonder. This is a theme park for the intellect and imagination. A late-night talk show for the shamelessly fringe. An exploration of magic, hypnosis, the paranormal, the supernatural, the secretive, the esoteric, the psychological, the psychoanalytical, the philosophical, the mysterious, and of course the deepest questions of them all. Who and what we really are. I'm Greg Bornstein, Chief Looper, cultural hypnotist, and consciousness disruptor, and thank you all for tuning in. Now, what are we going to cover today? My gosh. Literally, all those things I talked about in the intro, magic, hypnosis, the psychological, maybe not the psychoanalytical, though perhaps a little bit of that. If you are an entertainer, you probably have those issues at some level. And what do you know? My guest is an entertainer, though he seems pretty resolved. Um, Michael Mesmer, an award-winning hypnotist and magician. Danger magic. Uh, He is, well, they call him the phenomenist, which I love. I love it. I love the whole Mesmer branding. I mean, Mesmerism, the original, uh, the Mesmerism, the original hypnosis. Wink. So great. Uh, Yeah, I, I really 
really did not know what to expect of this interview, except that I knew that this was a man who had been around. He'd been doing live entertainment for many, many years, been to over 25 countries. I mean, I I think I also covered this again in the intro, so that's always the risk, right? You get the re-intro for me, though maybe it'll go in deeper into your subconscious the next time. That's one of the principles of hypnosis, repetition. But also, you're going to learn a lot about the principles behind hypnosis, persuasion, influence, as well as what makes a good magic show work. What is it that keeps us glued to prestidigitators? You know that word? Uh, uh, also, conjurers. Those are those are the theatrical magicians, the one that uh, the ones that Michael grew up uh, performing with, and and he was a magician himself before he transitioned into more of this danger magic. Still using magical techniques, but now it's a little more risk factor, a little more extreme, a little more Houdini and David Blaine on the edge. He's a fringe guy. We love the fringe. Also, uh, you're going to hear about his unique approach to hypnosis shows, which uh, I just think the art form of stage hypnosis has needed an upgrade for a long time. Michael's been doing it. Now, I've never seen Michael Mesmer perform live, though. If you check out his YouTube clips and even just reading the press, I mean, this is a man who really has made an impact in the space. I was so honored that he gave me more than two hours with him. I did not know where we would go. We went to some pretty serious moments about the entertainment struggle. But but uh, we also talked about what ghosts he's encountered by the end, too. Yes, real ghost stories. What kind of an interview do you want on Open Loops? Do you want to just hear one ghost hunter or do you want to hear a ghost hunter that's made his living creating mystical experiences in the minds of everyone he encounters how can you do that what are the principles behind it michael mesmer delivers and delivers it strong i am so honored he came on the show i've been wanting to have a stage hypnotist for a long time uh Besides Jonathan Royal, who says hypnosis doesn't exist, so... No, can you even say he's a stage hypnotist? Uh, no, no, My, Michael Mesmer, he believes hypnosis exists. He's a student of Gil Boyne's, who... Gil Boyne taught my mentor, Justin Trance. Uh, he was one of the... Don't you love these names? Michael Mesmer, Justin Trance. You gotta have a Z if you're a cool hypnotist these days, I think. And interestingly enough, Anthony Coles in Las Vegas does not have a Z. And you can tell by his show. Just kidding. Wink. The other thing I want to say is that one of the things that intrigued me about Michael is that he wrote this article uh, about theatrical magic in horror films. So I wanted to talk to him a little bit about that too because I love old black we got old black and white movies in here in the horror genre and, and magic within classic Hollywood filmmaking if you listen back to the early episodes of this show everything is in there everything is in there 
this is <laughs> it it doesn't end it doesn't end uh and i'll tell you what his article is up for the rondo haddon classic horror awards so uh if you could do a favor listen to this or don't listen to this and follow the instructions in the show notes to vote for michael's article about monsters and magic because it would definitely help him out uh it's a really cool article he he talks about everything you need to know about classic hollywood monster magic and he shares that in this episode too so you get it you get it both ways here uh yes that said let's not delay this any further the amazing the incredible michael mesmer Yes, today on Open Loops, we have Michael Mesmer, uh, someone who has toured 25 countries around the world, uh, an award-winning hypnotist, a a danger magician, uh, which we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. Um, but yeah, I mean, just uh, he's been a guest lecturer and starring performer at the International Hypnotherapy Conference, dubbed the hypnotist hit. The, the hypnotist's hypnotist by the legendary Gil Boyne, who is uh, one of my uh, – he's no longer with us, but one of the people that I definitely uh, look up to as a prominent, prominent figure in all forms of hypnosis and hypnotherapy. Um, has a degree in psychology, uh, a lot of Entertainer of the Year awards. I mean, you, you magician, hypnotist, uh, wrote this very interesting article about about horror films and and magic um and also now has a book coming out too ghost trancer which is a hypnotist among the spirits um so yeah michael really hits on all of the stuff that this show's about had to have him on michael mesmer thanks for thanks for coming on the show oh i lost him (laughs) where'd he go I'm so sorry. I got cut off somehow. That was amazing. Wait a minute. That was <laughs> the first time a magician has pulled. <laughs> yes. He pulled a vanishing act on me. I just read this intro and then he disappeared, but now he's back. Uh, Michael <laughs> Michael Mesmer, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm excited. Yeah, I know we we there are so many things that align here, and you know what? I've always thought that, um, well, hmm. I guess I'll put it this way. I mean, I first thing was being magician. That was what drew me into everything in terms of performing and the mystical and whatnot. Um, and then there was acting, and then later yeah. came hypnosis. And and psychology and and neurolinguistic programming and then later after that really came a uh, well it's interesting because I kind of went from a skeptical very skeptical framework which I know some magicians do uh, most notably James Randi um, right and now that I'm doing this show I'm going oh well, maybe there is something to this size stuff maybe there are the experiences I mean. Um, well, uh, let me just start here. I mean, what, what in what order did it happen for you? 
How did you how did you get molded into uh, the entertainer that you are today? Well, yeah, slightly different than your than your order. <laughs> I yeah. um, my, my oldest brother, Laverne, was a, a drummer for Chubby Checker and Little Richard. And then um, as I got older, my middle brother, Walter, got me involved in show business. And then my first paid show was when I was seven. Uh, I did a, a show with Connie Stevens, famous star at the time, Mary Daddy yeah. Fisher. And but um, she w- we did The Wizard of Oz and I was one of the lollipop kids. So I guild. So I. I did that. Um, and so theater was my first thing. My brother went on to be a Tony nominated actor on Broadway and stuff. And then um, from there, um, I eventually found a love of magic. Well, I was interested in magic when I was about, oh, around 11-ish is when I really, my first really interest in magic started about 11. And I got a magic kit and went from there. And then um, eventually performed magic uh, at my school and moved on from there. And eventually became the first in the first group of junior members for the Magic Castle in Hollywood, um, along with some other people that went on to great careers. And um, so that was the thing. Then as I toured um, doing magic in 25 countries around the world, um, I eventually saw trance ceremonies over in Asia and Malaysia. Um, and they were enticing to me, you know, and, and fascinating because um, I saw things that I couldn't believe. I mean, being a magician, I, I was familiar with techniques on how to do things, but when I saw these trance ceremonies, for instance, in um, well, in Indonesia, they have what they call the horse dance, and they yeah. have a guy ties him, put him in trance, and then they he becomes a horse. He eats grass off the ground, which is not a big deal, but then they whip him with a leather whip. He gets welts on his back. Uh, he eats a light bulb and swallows the glass, um, and then afterwards, uh, the welts go away almost instantaneously. Uh, within a few minutes. Uh, that was fascinating. And then the Kin Jay up in Thailand, where they um, actually have ceremonies where they uh, they sort of pay homage to their, or homage to their uh, vegan God. And what they do is they put these one or two inch spikes through one cheek and out the other. They hang weights from them. Then they put skewers through their tongue and then they walk through the streets for hours and they come back eventually uh, some people even put tree branches through their cheeks. It's really insane. And they eventually get back to the uh, <clears throat> temple and they pull all these things out, the skewers, and then no blood, no damage, no scars. Um, and, uh, you know, a tongue should actually at that point have to be cut off because it should be already damaged to the point where it can't even be re- resuscitated with blood flow. So um, that really struck me. Um, it was pretty amazing stuff. And so when I got back to the States, I thought to myself, I want to learn more about hypnosis. And uh, so I eventually found Gil Boyne and the Hemsum Training Institute in Glendale, California. And Gil Boyne, I'm sure you may have heard the name, but he was uh, legendary in our industry. Um, yeah, I know. I haven't really gone into him a lot. So for people that don't know, I'd, I'd love for you to kind of give a background about Gil since he's um, influenced so many people that I, I also love in the industry. Well, yeah, Gill was actually influenced originally. His inspiration was Orman McGill, who was before yes. him. Um, and Gill, um, he was very, very prominent in the hypnosis industry. He's passed away since, but he started the American Council of Hypnotist Examiners, which has thousands of members around the world, of which I was president a couple of years ago, which I was very honored to be. Um, but but Gill um, did transforming therapy, which is a very revolutionary way of doing hypnotherapy and a very rapid way of doing hypnotherapy. His book's still available. You can find it, Transforming Therapy by Gil Boyne. But I studied with Gil, and the beauty about Gil was, unlike some of the other teaching 
groups like there's him him as a motivational training institute here in uh, I think it's in West Hollywood or whatever. Yes. But, but anyway, they sh- they shy away from stage hypnotism. They don't like that. They think it's not good. Whereas Gil embraced it. In fact, Gil even performed in Vegas. He also was the um, um, the uh, hypnosis person that on the Hypnotic Eye, a movie back in 1957, I believe, or 56, The Hypnotic Eye. And he it was a B-horror film, but he huh. oversaw hypnosis on it. And actually, the hypnosis is very, very accurate and well done. Um, but Gil, so Gil was happy to be. He even also worked with Sylvester Stallone as a client, Dolly Parton. So wow. he was he was open to the entertainment world. In fact, he embraced it and loved it. And so when I came to him as a hip, as a magician who had been touring the world and my theater background and everything, he was really happy to have me as a student. And I took 500 hours of training with him. And then I did an internship at the Institute wow. of Therapy. And um, so anyway, from there, I developed my hypnosis show. And um, so I've been touring around even around the world with that in Hong Kong and other places. And um, my hypnosis show, because of my theater background, is very theatrical. In other words, it's not like a bunch of bits like you see most of the hypnotists do because they come from a comedy store background. I come from a theater background. So there's a beginning, middle and end, a lot of music, a lot of high energy and a very positive uh, you know, experience for everybody. I got to watch your show because this is, I mean, I certainly thought over the years, that was one of the first things I thought, Michael, um, and, and we're going to get back to these these trance rituals you saw sure. too, and, and magic in general, just everything, because I'm curious your thoughts about that. But um, yeah, that is one of the things about stage hypnosis shows. They are often, and it's why they're so easy to duplicate. I mean, there's been a thing in years you would read. I remember uh, criticism in magic books that the the best magic uh, theorist would say, yeah, it's unfortunate that you can buy a trick, perform the patter, and then just do it that night. It really craps on the art. And look, the thing is, you can see the difference. You can see a magician that is phoning it in and saying the lines. I, I will admit I've been there. Um, but at the same time, uh, a hypnotist <laughs> doesn't even, you know, you could give them, because of the way suggestion works, you could just give them a progressive relaxation script They'll get at least one person because of the the expectation in the audience. And then if they know a bunch of – I mean, that's how I learned. There was a high school hypnotist that came to our school. I just copied the skits, uh, came up with some original stuff, and that person goes around and starts claiming they're a stage hypnotist. Right. Um, so it really – I feel like it can be um, – to, to have a unique stamp in your hypnosis show, super rare. Um, I mean well, – yeah, it's not just that, Greg, but the thing is that it's like with anything you have a Picasso or you have someone that can paint a wall in a house, you know, and you still use paint, you still use a brush, but it's um, it's the artistry of it. And same with magic. I mean, you can take I mean, how many hundreds of magicians can do the, the Chinese linking rings, but right. you have you have people that can do them as an art that's so beautiful and so amazing, because even though you know exactly how it's done, you still can't figure out how it's done because yeah. the artist and the talent behind it so and and that's the danger with him stage hypnotist unfortunately too is um people can take a two-day seminar or they can read a book and then go out and dabble in it and unfortunately there are ab reactions that can occur during a show uh, and people can get um you know negatively impacted by it so 
it's it's and same with hypnotherapy. There's hypnotherapists going and take a three day weekend seminar and they think they're a therapist, and right. it's like you're not. And they can actually do damage in in their own way because of their lack of skill set, um, not because of their lack of heart or their lack of wish to help people, but because of their lack of skill set. And so um, every business is that way. Actually, there's anything to involve the arts. You can have all different levels of the arts. You can have people that are sound terrific in a karaoke bar, but they can't be in a Broadway show. Um, right. so, so it's it's really no different than any art form. Uh, sculpting as well. You know, why is one sculptor's uh, sculpt worth millions of dollars and another one's worth $10 at the swap meet? Uh, do they have any less heart? Right. Or any less be good at it? No, but they have more skill, more natural talent, and perhaps a lot more training and instruction so that there's so that they're experts at what they do. Yeah, I mean, but but you know what? To add on to that, I guess the the point of that uh, those articles I was reading is that they're saying it is sad. This is why magic is dismissed as an art because the the illusion is the thing that you can duplicate very easily. You can learn the linking rings. You can buy a box that does the trick, um, and people focus on the trick and not the performer and. Yeah, I mean, look, how many magicians do, uh, yeah, that was the question, I remember, I went to Tannin's magic camp as a kid, and uh, they said, how many magicians can people name, ask them to name magicians out there, and then, you know, what, you get stuck after, like, Chris Angel Copperfield, I mean, it, luckily with Netflix and America's Got Talent and stuff like this, it's a little more popular uh, now than it was, but certainly in the early 2000s, I mean, there were maybe four names. Um, well, the thing is, Greg, that um, here's the thing. What is art and magic? You know, people, it's not just a good performance. It's not just having good performance skills to do art. You have to do something that you're not really concerned if people like it or they don't like it, but that you do something different, something, mm. um, you know, I do danger magic. That's what I currently do. Um, cause I really, really got inspired by, um, David Blaine and to an extent, Chris Angel, um, but, but more David Blaine. Um, and so I do things where I break an arrow with my neck. I put my hand in a wolf trap. I, I do a bullet catch. I swat, do razor blades. I do a lot of things that are really a little more, um, a little more artistic in a way or a little different. So it's not for everyone. And I know that. Yeah. Uh, and, but the thing is you can either follow what everyone does, or you can follow what you do and be unique. But in doing that, perhaps you are creating art because you're doing something that's stepping outside the box and it's not necessarily commercial, although it can be. It can run commercially at the same time, but it may not be designed necessarily to, like most people say, oh, I want to create a magic show. Okay, let me look at what David Copperfield's doing. Let me get those illusions or something. Okay, then you're just being a hack. You're, yes. you're a hack. And, and most magicians, sadly, and I'm not dissing, there's a lot of good ones too, but many of them, just like many stage hymnists, are hacks. They're people that just copy what's been done. They caught, they have already copied what's been done. And they're, yeah. basically, they're basically, here's an old word for you, a Xerox copy of another act. And right. not necessarily style, but in what material they're using. So if you're going to consider magic an art, it has to be artists that are true artists. Because, you know, Picasso, these people, they didn't do stuff to make money. They did it because it was something they wanted to create. And then the public eventually came along with it and, eventually embraced it maybe sometimes not even their lifetime so that's art when you're not trying to be necessarily commercial but again they can run together you can be you can make a living doing it at the same time but that shouldn't be the necessarily focal point of your what you're doing with what you're you performing
Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, I... Yeah, everybody... That was the thing. If Copperfield did it, everybody started doing it yeah. for a while. Um, he he very famously did the four ace trick about his grandfather that you started seeing. Uh, at least I heard this. I, I was a little younger, but 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 yeah. people talked about how people started doing these emotional tricks. I mean, that was sort of the, the Copperfield's big thing. He would tie emotion into it, and he did it so well. But on the other hand, Michael, I was going, you know what? This is a cool way to do the art, and... Is there a way to still make magic emotional without necessarily everybody saying you're just a copy Copperfield copycat? How did how do how does a magician step forward when someone has? I mean, he, he's in the. I think he might be a one percenter. He's at least one of the. He's always listed at the top entertain paid entertainers in the world. Um, I mean, is there? Yeah, I. I I'm not even sure the economy of magic and and hypnosis allows for somebody to be such an artistic original. But maybe that's me being pessimistic. I mean, what do you think? How would if you were to advise someone how to really do a meaningful magic show or hypnosis show that is still able to transcend what others have done before? Where would you point them? Well, you know, um, you have to follow your own heart. Um, and I think that not everybody can be totally unique because I think it's something you're born into. I, I, mm. I look at David Copperfield though, and you know, no one's ever done a better sawing in half than he did with the death saw. No one's ever done a better levitation than his flying routine. That I cry, I tear up every time I see it. Yeah. Um, he just was born with it. It just was, it was in him, just like Michael Jackson, just like Elvis Presley. Um, People can copy it, and many people did co still do copy Michael Jackson's music, as a matter of fact. But you can't be Michael Jackson. You can't be Elvis Presley. Now, you know, I've been lucky because I'm not, I'm not um, David Copperfield, but I have been able to make a good living doing what I love and my passion. So I feel very blessed. Um, most people wouldn't know who I am, but the people that I perform for will always remember what I did. Um, yeah. You know, um, and as far as what I'm doing now, the reason I do the danger magic, you're talking about touching emotion. I love to look out in the eyes and see people cringing or people gagging when they're watching the show. It's a visceral response to what I do and a very emotional response for a different reason than what you're talking about with David Copperfield. Um, but but that's why I do enjoy the danger mask. I get injured, but I but on occasion, but I <laughs> oh my gosh. like well, I like it because I use a lot of self-hypnosis, both the arrow break and putting my hand on the wolf trap um, and stuff like that. So for me, that's the way I can get the emotion out of the audience that I want to get from them. Um, but it's, again, anyone can strive for David to be that level of a David Copperfield or of a Doug Henning or a Houdini. Um, and hopefully if you love it enough and you're willing to sacrifice enough, because that's what it is about art. You really have to sacrifice for it. You may, you know, so many magicians, so many entertainers uh, fail marriages. Um, you don't have mm. the have what other people have in the quote normal world um and so sadly you must all art means you just have to sacrifice for it because it doesn't necessarily lead to riches it only leads to satisfaction that you're doing what you love but of course the greatest artists um they were all troubled people i mean van gogh cutting off his ear you know i mean yeah if you're an artist that's what that's how far you're willing to go that's how far you become your art
Oh my gosh, I really didn't think we were going to mention Will Smith the day after, two days after the thing happened, but... I didn't mention Will Smith. I didn't no, you Will didn't, Smith. you didn't, but I feel, I that to me is the... No, you didn't. I'll give you credit. You didn't do it, though. That suggestion came up in my head. I won't okay. blame you for that, um, well, but... Yeah, give me that suggestion. <laughs> I'll give you credit. I'll give you credit. No, I mean, Wait. like, two days after the Academy Awards, this is when we're recording this, um, yeah. we see an example of great art contrasted with um, weakness in the human condition, in a way. Um, and, I mean, it, you really did just make me think, Michael, how I, at one time I was doing this Shakespeare program uh, a summer program, and this guy, really good actor, uh, forget his name off the top of my head, he was on The Wire, he was a Shakespearean actor, came in to do a workshop, and someone asked him, um, look, you're on all these shows, you've got you've got a kid with disabilities, you're, you, you sometimes can see your wife, you're flying, you're doing a Broadway show, you're doing TV films, how do you do that? And he goes, I've had to be the bare minimum of a husband that struck me that struck me hard because i'm going yeah. whoa that's um yeah i don't know how great artists can do it i and i know we're in this era where people are trying to do their best right people are trying to be uh, and um things that are problematic in society we got the woke era we got people that are you know open communication emotional communication understanding the partner's love language go it's okay normalizing therapy all this stuff and yet what you said before to to be someone that is out there putting yourself out there because you love it um I don't know. I don't know if there is a career. I don't know if there's like a mental health counselor for couples of uh, performance couples, but well, I don't know how it would work. John Lennon put it perfectly in a very simple statement. He said, genius is pain. And that's really what it is. Genius is pain. And whether you're a genius or not, art is pain. I will say that. Um, you know, the thing is that, mm, you know, I haven't ever seen a great artist that didn't have pain in his life because a lot of creativity comes from pain. And, but the thing is you have to ultimately find a balance, um, a balance between the art and your personal life. And that's a struggle because one will take away from the other either way. So it's a difficult struggle to find that balance. And, you know, the ultimate thing is you have to understand that your art doesn't love you. You love your art, but it, it doesn't love you. It doesn't give you love back. Oh. So, so how much love do you want to give that art versus how much love do you want to give the people that care about you? Because ultimately the only love you get is the love. You, like Beale said, in the end, the love you get is equal to the love you take. You make right. you know? uh, love you make is equal to love you take or whatever it is. So the deal <laughs> is, I, I'm, I'm going off the cuff here, but that's how it is. So the deal is your art will never love you. And that applause is fleeting. And so in the end, you have to find that balance or you'll be a very empty vessel at the end of your life. Was there a point in your career? Oh my gosh, we're going so much deeper than shop talk about hypnosis and magic, but, but I do want to know this, Michael. Um, so was there a point in your career where the applause did feel empty for you ever? You know, um, hmm. well, you know, I always, I always remember Freddie, Freddie Prince. Remember him? Yeah. And he up committing suicide because he couldn't hear the laughter anymore 
And I think that when I saw his doc, his film, his TV movie about him, about his life, it really affected me and it made me think deeply about it. Um, the applause is wonderful. It's like, um, it's like a little shot of medicine every time you do a show. But in the end, you have to understand that those people, they may love your show and they may love you as a person and enjoy your work, but they're never going to be there when you're on your deathbed. The only people that are going to be there are the people that care about you. So for me, there may have been a time when I was a younger entertainer where, you know, I let it all encompass me. But as I went along, it wasn't that I couldn't hear it or that I didn't know the applause was there anymore. It's simply I put it in the in the value that I I put it in a place of value where it should be and not put it in a place that overtook me, you know? Wow, that seems like a very difficult um thing to do. I mean, early on in this podcast I talked to people that had been touring rock and I mean rock and roll bands but like touring weddings and and doing live venues on the local scene and and seeing how a lot of the even at that level um they, there were still stuff that came up drugs groupies um the escapism and and uh, one of these guys said Alan Curran's uh, very early episode I did he mentors a lot of young up and coming musicians and he said if he senses that you're going to be in it for the wrong reasons, these egoic reasons. If he senses it's all about the glamour, he will advise you to get out of the industry. Um, I mean, what is your take on that? Do you have well, to? Do you have to me, go through the pain to succeed? Well, what do you think? For me, um, the best way I was able to do this um, in my later years is I recreated myself, and my name, Michael Mesmer, is a, is a marketing choice, um, like David Copperfield or John. Yeah. Wayne. And so Michael Mesmer is not who I am in my private life. I have another name and another persona. So when I'm, Michael, when I'm Michael Mesmer, he's the egotist. He's the one that does the fantastic shows. He's the one that goes for the accolades, the awards, and loves this applause and, and all that. When I'm with my wife or my daughter or my son at home, I'm, Gre I'm Greg. I have the same name as you, actually. So I'm Greg at home, and I'm just me, and I'm you know wearing a ball cap and wearing jeans and you know eating spaghetti so um but when i'm out on the sh in a as michael mesmer like i do parties in beverly hills where i'm paid seven thousand dollars for a 45 minute show right and and wolfgang puck is catering it you know himself personally and so <laughs> wow i do kind of events i'm michael mesmer and i'm bigger i have to be bigger than life i have to be the image of michael mesmer so by separating the two i've kind of been able to compartmentalize that ego thing that that art that that dedication there and when i and then having the other side of it with the family i'm all family and all into that when i'm with them that seems like an interesting way that the, that uh that dissociation that you've set up sounds uh -huh. like a like a cool way to do showbiz i mean it makes me wonder why did uh well i think i know why but what why why did uh norma jean and marilyn monroe end up making her as depressed why couldn't she separate as much well, I, I think with her, it wasn't so much to do with her art or her performing. It was her childhood, um, yeah. her, her abuse by men. Um, it was so deep in her psyche that it would have fell into every part of her life. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, yeah, therapy for entertainers and mental health for entertainers. It's, you know, it's a it's a double edged sword. I mean, like you said, uh, genius is pain. Um, I. Uh, let me ask you this, in your experience, 
if somebody does really work on their issues, does it have you seen it worsen <laughs> their artistic expression? Because that's the fear they have, right? Oh, I got to keep my pain. It's what drives me. It's even Marlon Brando was saying stuff about that. I mean, um, oh, yeah. What what is your take? I, I feel I'm an advocate for mental health, but I also know it can lead to some interesting things that uh, and a lot of things that we value in society is artistic treasures. Um, what is your I what think, are your thoughts? Well, I think part of it is some of the people that become stars, some of the people that get to the top, they get there in a non organic way. Um, they don't work their way up. In fact, you may never make the top trying to work up. You know, you just do your job like I do, entertain. But a lot of them, sadly, make their way. Well, we know the heart, the Weinstein issue with all the women that slept yeah. with him get ahead. So they get ahead. And then at what price is that ultimately? And so, you know, it, it, I think it's I think the people that have more of the difficult mental issues are people that, well, one, either had really traumatic childhoods, which for comedians, that's a treasure trove of work you know you can channel <laughs> yes your, your comedy is actually your therapy so you know that's cool but a lot of the people that get to be stars that we might know you'll never know what they really did and how they really made it to the top and because of that they carry all that weight with them and in doing so i don't know if they can ever really escape it interesting very interesting uh, okay, so this is good. This is a good side diversion for a second, but I want to go back to magic um, yes. growing up. I mean, what, what what years are we talking about? Like, are we talking the seventies, eighties, when or sixties? When when was uh you, you when were you in the world of magic and illusion for the first time? Yeah, yeah. Um, that would be about uh, sixty eight. Sixty eight. Okay. Nineteen sixty eight. Not eighteen. <laughs> no, 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 19, 19. Um, yeah, what a cool time to be a part of Magic. I mean, we got, you know, Di Vernon still alive, Ed Marlowe. Um, well, we're talking about my favorite card, guys. But, um, yeah. you know, Doug Hennings is about to come on the scene. Um, yeah, I mean, really, really, Mark Wilson's got his television show. Um, yeah, you know, uh, when I was in high school, we went down to see a, a filming of the Magic Circus with Mark Wilson for our drama class. Oh my gosh! And that I... was really awesome. And then, of course, after that came along the uh, the Magician with Bill Bixby, which was a major yes you know, push to me. In fact, I still have a Corvette in my garage because of Bill Bixby and the Magician. Um, and uh, so that was—I mean, Bill was fantastic as the Magician, and Mark Wilson did a great job with helping him learn all the magic. And Bill became yeah. a aficionado of magic after that and he always supported magic and did magic um and then of course after that bam doug henning you know and doug henning was a game changer i went to see four of his specials taped and wow. so i'm and i ended up buying a lot of his props when he when he um went out of magic um what do you think was um what was happening before doug henning and magic and and what do you think he what was the game changer that he brought to the scene well you know magicians um they were terrific magicians um people that i really looked up to when i was in um in the 60s i got to see marvin and carol roy mr electric in las vegas when, when yes. we went my parents we went to vegas a lot with my parents i met judy garland i met a lot of great stars when i was young but um but anyway i saw marvin and carol and they were so great and later on fortunately i got to work with marvin on a couple on a cruise ship and in another uh venue where we did close-up magic he and i but um but anyway um they were great magicians. It's just they were the Ed Sullivan type where they came out and did 10 minutes, they 12 minutes, whatever. And it wasn't yeah. just Doug 
it was really, uh, as far as the sophisticated magic, it was Siegfried and Roy that made the big change too. Um, not on a national uh, way in a sense, because Doug Henning hit with his national TV special. Uh, Siegfried and Roy eventually did a couple specials, but their theory was they wanted people to have to come see them in Vegas. So they didn't want to be on TV a lot. They wanted people, mm -hmm. that's why I spent room only shows in Vegas their entire career. Yeah. But I was friends with Siegfried and Roy. In fact, I just did a real, uh, last year, uh, I did a show for Reels Channel called Autopsy, The Last Hour of Hours of Roy Horan. It's a, not about the tiger. It's about how he died from COVID and was one of the first right. stars of COVID. And it's a very nice tribute to uh, Roy. And I think we did a great job on it. You can catch it on the Reels Channel. And I'm prominent throughout the whole program. Oh, wow, I got to check that out. Yeah, really good. Um, there's video on there of Siegfried and Roy you've never seen before. And uh, Diana Zimmerman was also... Uh, who may, people may not know her, but she's a famous lady magician uh, from the, the old, the back in the day. And um, in any case, um, I think we did a real honor for Roy and Siegfried. And um, if anybody gets a chance to watch it, I highly recommend it. That show, they have all the different stars and some are very negative, as you can imagine, because as we were talking about, they have a lot of demons. With Roy, he was such a positive guy and Siegfried were such professionals that um, it became, it was a very positive show because it talked about their history and how successful they were and all of that. So, Change um, Vegas. I mean, Vegas was not a magic hub at the time. No, when they came to Vegas, uh, this was after Marv and all these people had played their 10-minute acts. When they came to Vegas, they said, oh, magic doesn't work in Vegas. You're going to be out of here in a week. Well, guess what? They they were there for <laughs> yeah. decades and sold out every freaking performance and revolutionized magic. And I argue with magicians too, Greg, because they all say, oh, well, Blackstone is my favorite magician or, or you know, was the greatest magician, Houdini. Well, I'll tell you something. I think Siegfried and Roy were the greatest magicians. And let me tell you why. That show can never be duplicated. You can buy the illusions that Houdini did or David Copperfield did. You can buy those if you have a million, millions of dollars. Yeah. You can't duplicate what Siegfried and Roy did with those cats and the magic. No one will ever be able to do that because now with all the laws and everything, no one can even attempt to do it. But secondly, before or after, no one's done anything even close to what they did with with those animals and the magic combined. So to me, I have to say they were the greatest of all time because wow. they were because no one can duplicate them. No one. Yeah. 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 No, no, no. I, 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 I mean, I, hmm, even in the magic circles, you don't really hear about, oh yeah, this magician is doing, uh, the Siegfried and Roy tiger appearance no. in the glass box. Like you don't hear that. It's, I, I mean, did they, and, and we both know there are a lot of big names in magic illusion design. Uh, Jim Steinmeier, uh, Johnny Gone. I mean, people that I really – brilliant. Yeah. Did Siegfried and Roy have any – I mean, how much were they involved in the mechanics of their show and in, in actually crafting the illusions? Well, I know, that, I know some of this because I was a good friend of Les Smith at Owens Magic. And um, actually, I'm in the catalog of Owens Magic with a lot of the illusions. Um, and actually, to add to that, um, the, awesome. the person who took the photos for that catalog was Bill Taylor, who also did all the matte photography for Blade Runner and all the Star Trek series like wow. Next Gen. And he just passed away last year. In fact, on the Academy Awards the other night, if we can get past that other incident, he was in the memoriam. They had a shot wow. of him. But um, anyway, I was there when they were building Siegfried and Roy's equipment for their earlier shows. And they also built Doug's first stuff in it for his first TV special. Um, but um, in any case, uh, yes, they were very interactive with what they wanted. Um, 
they would sit with Les and they would sit around having tea, which Les always brought out tea, him and Gertrude, his wife. And I was there many times having tea with them. And they would just discuss magic and they would talk about what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it. And Les would help create it. And um, but what I will say about Siegfried and Roy, and this is kind of a statement about the industry at that time too, uh, Les loved them because he said those were good. He said he called them boys because they were really young to him. Yeah. And he said, those, those are good boys. He goes, they always pay when I deliver the magic. They've never shored me on my money. And he said, they're really good boys. And so that was something for him to say that because magicians, sadly, the illusionists in many times, and I'm not talking about a lot. I mean, there were good ones, Blackstone people, that Blackstone Jr. that were also just equally quality people. But there were many that would short, you know, they build the illusions for them custom and then uh, they get, you know, they wouldn't get, they get short of their money and, right. or they would just, you know. And so one of the copycats for of Siegfried Roy, Carl Beck, um, the Carlton and company who were in Vegas trying to copycat with Tigers at the time, they got stuff from Les knowing that he built Siegfried Roy stuff. And sadly they shorted him because he had a, uh, Carlton had a drug habit and it was oh, a big man. Mess. Yeah. So, but anyway, um, did Steve yeah. Wyrick ever short them? I feel like he would have. <laughs> I don't want to, I, I know a lot about him. But I, <laughs> Steve I, I, is I, so I, controversial. I no, I, he, I don't uh, want to people that are out there at the moment. Is he but, still doing uh, shows? Steve Wyrick's out there. I think he's still working. Yeah. I think he may be, but every, but I know he got a lot of financiers after him because he would keep doing show after show and getting money from people. And yeah, he's kind of like the tin, the Tinder swindler of magic. Look him up, folks. Uh, Michael didn't say it. I did. Um, yeah. Now, you know what? I'm a little mad at Steve. I'm not too mad at Steve. I was actually just talking about him with my aunt this past weekend because oh, yeah. um, we went to Vegas in 2000. Three, I believe okay. it was the summer of 2003. We saw Rick Thomas. We saw, uh, we saw Penn and Teller show, which I had seen before. Um, uh, let's see, who else did we see? Uh, well, we saw Wyrick was one of them. We saw, um, and he did this deal where you pay extra to go see him after the show but yeah. he was just so condescending I felt and really didn't give anything for it and on top of that the show wasn't good so I'm going we were all kind of disappointed in the experience um yeah. and well you know I, I know how that feels um but um you mentioned Penn and Teller I'm gonna I'm gonna hit on several things you just said okay um, great you mentioned Penn and Teller they would be Teller's definitely an artist with magic I, I would mean, say he, he contributes to the illusion. You know, he's one of the guys. Art and magic. He's one of the few that really. Yes. His stuff is quite brilliant, you know. Um, and so I would say if you want to see the art of magic, watch some of the stuff Teller does because it's it's definitely in that realm. And yet they can do the commercial part of it, but there's the artistic end of it as well, which is a neat combination of what we were talking about. Yeah. Um, as far as. Um, and you asked me what really changed, why did, why Doug Henning changed Doug magic. Henning, yeah. Well, Doug changed magic because we were seeing these people in tuxedos and we were seeing them do magic in 10, 15 minute spots on Ed Sullivan and in Vegas and reviews. And here's the thing, by that time, see, when magicians started wearing tuxedos, that was back when that was the standard evening wear. So they were dressing as the audience dressed, as the people dressed. So they weren't dressing in a way that was obscure or bizarre. Um, and, it, and remember, these people weren't doing theater pieces with magic where they were doing it as a costume. That They were still wearing tuxedos as if it were something that was a natural, normal yes. thing. Now, we had gotten past, well, I never get past the Sinatra era because I love Frank Sinatra. 
but but we had gotten past kiddos and all of that right so doug henning comes out he's wearing they always say he wore jeans and stuff he did wear jeans but they were costume they were costume pieces he had them designed they were professionally made i mean it's come out in jeans like we see now with some of the acts but um but he came out and he came out looking like sort of a hippie if you will it was a little after the hippie era but but also just sort of in his own mode so it was so totally different we had never seen that before ever in a magician and he had such a positive attitude and created a, a feeling of wonder with magic again instead of being tricks it kind of became and it's kind of become that way now too. And I don't like it. Um, you know, people always say, Oh, that was a great magician. Sometimes I say, well, he's a good trickster or, you know, there's comedy, mm. comedy magic is a misnomer. You can't really do. There's very few, except for Mae Penn and Teller and a handful of others that can really do be excellent comedians and excellent magicians, create that wonder with the magic while still doing comedy. So it's sort of a misnomer, misnomer to say, Oh, I'm a comedy magician. Okay. Let's see you do comedy. Well, I can't do that unless I do the magic. <laughs> right. Magic. Well, I can't do that unless I do my gags. Okay, then you're not a comedian or a magician. You're not, you're not any of those. So right. you're not a. So I know I have really deep theories on this stuff. But no, no, um, I love it. I love it. But but Doug came out and he created a true sense of wonder. He made a 90 year old or 70 year old or 50 year old or 40 year old person feel like they were five again. And that was the beauty of what he did. It was truly a beautiful art and. You know, he had good advisors working with him. So he had good, good equipment and good ideas. And, and of course he studied with the professor, Di Vernon. And so he had a good background in magic, yet he also had his own beautiful concepts. So he revolutionized magic because we went overnight from seeing people in tuxedos to seeing people wear costuming and something totally that you never saw before. And yeah. that, made, that made magic new again and fresh again. And then David in the eighties, of course, changed it up to the 80s again and 80s style clothing and 80s style music and you know phil collins and and also he had such a great group of advisors helping design illusion of course now i don't want to say anything against david either but he did take a lot of people's mouth i was just talking to a friend of mine who had a trick stolen from him way back in the day from david you know and never got credit so there was that but whether it was david or his advisors who will ever know yeah. so, the, so the deal is you know david may have thought oh i'm just doing this you know so um who knows but uh, yeah, no, wanna... I've, I've heard that about I've heard that and I, I won't say names, but definitely they, I've heard the story of Snowstorm before. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I've heard. I, I, yeah, I, there, there's some things that kind of slip through the cracks there that um, by otherwise, I mean, yeah, the other it, it should have been other magicians getting the main credit right. for it. But right. Copperfield just happened or, to do it. But unfortunately, David was the. Uh, the ultimate performer and he had that ability like we're talking about michael jackson and you know when you're michael jackson you know maybe you well like the beatles sometimes uh, i know uh george harrison you know with uh, my sweet lord he 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 didn't realize he did it even but um he wrote a song my sweet lord but there was a, another song done by one of the female singing groups in the 50s or 60s and they had the same melody and and it was like you know, the same thing, the same. So he ended up losing a lawsuit over it. So, you know, sometimes these people are on such a level, they don't really know. It comes from advisors or maybe they saw it and they forgot they even saw it. And now they're doing it. Yeah. So, and Robin Williams used to say that too. Well, yeah, I, I had friends that were comedians that I worked with in Asia on the cruise ships. And they said, do you never do anything when Robin Williams came in that was new? Because if they came in the comedy store, if you did it, you see how I'm working Mindy in a couple of weeks. So, right. you know, 
But again, are they just absorbing their world and they don't really realize, oh, I'm going to steal that routine. And just their mind pops away and, oh, let's do this, you know? So, who knows, yeah. you know, but, um, but David was, David took it to another level. And then whether you like him or not, Chris Angel and David Blaine have now taken it to a different level as well. And I love David Blaine. You were talking about your experience with, with Steve Weirich, I think you were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, my daughter and I went to see David Blaine because we're big fans of his. And, you know, he had the meet and greet too, but we, we you know, we're entertainers. I can't pay $500 to meet and greet. So anyway, after the show, we decided we're going to meet, go by the stage door out back. So when there was a gate with the cars, we stood there about 15, 20 people ended up standing behind us ultimately. And as people said, oh, he's not coming out. There's no need to wait. He's not, he doesn't do that. Well, guess what? The gate opened and here comes David Blaine. Wow. I'm with every one of us. He talked to me about magic and we took photos with him. I said, is there anything else you need? You want me to sign anything for you? And he, he was just so generous. And he, and when we were leaving, he was still going down the line person by person. Now, mind you, after being underwater for 11 minutes, holding your breath, being exhausted, having a spike through your hand. And here yeah. he comes with his fans. Isn't that amazing? That is awesome. I saw him live, too. He came to Brooklyn a few years ago. And um, what a just, what a fun show. What a fun magic show. Um, anybody's ever seen in this era yeah yeah no it was great if anybody has a chance if he's touring again or does a show i recommend it i still haven't seen chris angel live but um i have I, yeah is he still doing now is it still like the cirque du soleil show or is it a different one that he does no, he, he moved over to the uh i think it's the aladdin or whatever it is i think is it the aladdin still i can't remember planet holly whatever it is yeah Same hotel. he moved there and he he created his, a new show and it's really it's really great. I love it. Um, you know, with Chris, it's one of those things that there's a lot of things I know behind the scenes because I have friends that worked as advisors on the Mind Freak show. And, you know, artists have egos. Let's just put it that way. Right. But, but um, the thing is, when I go to Disneyland, I only care about meeting Mickey Mouse. I don't care who's in the Mickey Mouse suit, if you get what I mean. So, so the deal is, when I watch Chris Angel, I love his show. I love what he does. My daughter and I have been long, hardcore fans of his. And um, I hope to meet him someday, but he's not as accessible as David Blaine. But um, yeah. But anyway, the show's great. It's, I mean, he has guitarists on stage playing guitar, lead guitar to his music while he's performing. He has uh, more vid visual effect, video effects and video screens over the ceiling, and uh, the top of the house. And it's just um, his illusions are good. He's, he's a very skilled magician, although magicians diss him so much. You know, he's different. And that's fine you know i love why i love him being different it's fresh it's a good approach and he did revolutionize magic yet again yeah yeah so wait a minute so in terms of your influence then when when you're seeing all this being a part of magic um and hypnosis too and, and you're you're creating this michael mesmer um to me that name and and even yeah it was a hypnotic suggestion i was drawn to interview you because i'm going oh this guy sounds like he's he's uh in this old world almost like that that poster the i see like you and the alexander the great alexander who knows poster those classic magic archetypal images um that's what I think of Michael Mesmer. I think a, a the, the, yeah, the great Mandrake, that kind of thing. Uh, was that a conscious thing on your part? I mean, what did, what do you want people to, to think or experience when they first hear your name? 
Well, Mesmer, M-E-S-M-E-R, was always, of course, you know, Mesmer in the uh, yes. a- old hypnosis. He, although he didn't, um, he didn't, it wasn't exactly framed as hypnosis then, but it was. He discovered the power of suggestion. He called it animal magnetism. Um, and that name still stands as, as pretty, probably almost as strong as Houdini. When you think of hypnosis, you think of mesmerism and mesmer. Yeah. So natural thing to do the M-E-Z-M-E-R and just do that because no hypnotist has ever done that really i've never seen that there may be someone out there but the thing is that michael mesmer you always wanted to smoothly you know come off the tongue easily and be memorable so michael Mesmer, most people just call me mesmer though that know me and i say oh mesmer this and that you know so yeah um it's a great marketing choice um like david copperfield you know copperfield you know Kotkin, right you know right seth Kotkin, but but it was you know copperfield's a name that you know, David Copperfield, we all know that book, everybody knew it. And so it's a great way to help you remember who you are and create some, some image around it before they even meet you or see you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things people always say, uh, you know, the posters do a lot of the work for a hypnosis show. Um, the intro that's given to you, you know, I mean, every sort of, uh, I didn't realize before and letting people peek behind the curtain a little bit here, but I'll just put it this way. Everything that a hypnotist does is intentional, starting with the promotions you see in the newspaper months in advance. <laughs> it's well, all intentional. I will tell you, Greg, that Gil Boyne, the thing that he taught that was the critical thing to hypnosis success, the first thing that I won't, I won't ask you this question because you may, may or may not be able to answer it correctly, and I won't put you on the spot at this moment, but I'm sure you'd get to it if we talked well. But, but Gil said the first thing you have to do for successful hypnosis and for a successful induction and therapy session or stage show is you have to excite the imagination and that's mm. the same any kind of theater you have to excite the imagination and then if you've done that you've done 50 percent of your work before they even come to the show or see you or even you know when you walk on stage if you can excite that imagination in some way quickly and easily then the rest of the work is much easier and, and much more successful yeah, yeah. Th- that is a very interesting point. And I I mean, it's it's definitely um, <laughs> that's a different way of putting it, because I just did this whole last episode about like, what is this show about? And it's about mind bending conversations. But yeah, no, really, when I do an interview with someone, it is about that. It, I, I always say it's, uh, you know, I want to be taken into a different trance. If someone comes on the show and they tell me that they've had an extraterrestrial experience, which I know you actually have, so we'll get into that. But if it's something I've never experienced, I want them to at least be able to tell it to me in a way that excites my imagination. That is it. That is um, – yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. I've never really thought about it as simply. It all comes down to that. It all comes down to that. And in theater, too, and in anything. I mean, um, and that's where a lot of uh, current artists, performers, other people, they miss the boat because they think that people are just going to be thrilled by their singing or thrilled by what they're doing. You have to excite that. You have to, with magic, for instance, it has to happen in the spectator's mind before it even ever happens in front of them in your hands or in your show. The magic has to happen first. So, again, exciting the imagination. That's interesting. So do you, um, are you looking when you're, when you're doing even a magic show, uh, are you looking to, are, are you consciously aware of when you're 
I guess, fractionating the audience, like pulling them into an illusion and then pulling them back. Um, I imagine with a hypnosis show, too. I mean, there's there's a trance happening for the people on stage, but I think a really skilled hypnotist can think about the world they want to pull the audience in so that everybody's in this collective exciting imaginatory state um if that is a word <laughs> imaginatory i don't know yeah. but yes i i'm pulled in i believe it's a word because i'm i'm so taken by this uh yeah i mean what do you uh what do you do when you're crafting a full show and considering uh the audience's experience well you know any great entertainer uh, they do create a hypnotic experience. If you went to Michael Jackson concert, you would, you were in trance watching that show essentially, because your imagination is heightened to such an extent, and the music overtakes your emotions, and you're in the zone. So, um, it's a. I my, by the way, Michael Jackson came to my show one night. I was going to ask you. You've brought him up so many times. I need to talk about you and Michael because I know he you perform for him, right? Yeah, he just came to the show one night. He was awesome, and he loved magic, and it was great. Didn't do the hypnosis for him, did the magic for him. But, um, right. but um, and I've, I've worked with a lot of stars through the years and been around a lot of stars, performed for Princess Grace, Elizabeth Taylor, a lot of people. But, wow. but the deal is this. When I look at, it's not so much the show, because now my shows are established, so I don't go back and retrace it, but I always like uh, music. Obviously, I do some pre-show music to excite their imagination. And then there's an announcement that that heightens that. And then when I come out, I want to come out with a bang and get them going, you know. So it's it's quite a bit of that. But, you know, I think the key is, whether it's verbal or nonverbal, it's storytelling skills. Mm. And, and so um, some, you know, some demonstrations that I do in magic or whatever require a little longer storytelling to engage the audience into the belief of what I'm doing and into that world and others visually can just do it by actions and what you're actually doing in a visual way. So there's different approaches to what your question to answer your question. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, as we mentioned earlier, David Copperfield has such great setup and stories around oh, yeah. the illusions, uh, Penn and Teller. I mean, when they're talking about some, con that happened yeah. years ago and you're, you're pulled into this world i mean even when you were mentioning uh i believe it was indonesia right was that where yeah. where, did, where did you okay so this is the interesting thing i have heard about this for years i've heard that there's this uh the the uh and, the, and i know the fakirs were kind of yes that is a real word folks yes, um <laughs> that i know that they're they're in the tradition of this but i've always wondered about you know how did the, the people in these Asian countries stumble upon hypnosis in this way? Ormond McGill, uh, you know, arguably the founder of modern stage hypnosis, talk, talked a lot about it. And there was even, I know he's putting out pamphlets where he's teaching some of these tricks and whatnot. Well, he had a book on his travels in, in overseas in Asia and all that. Yeah. Yeah. What Do you know anything about that? I'm sure you do know a little bit about that history. I mean, where does well, you know, playing with it, trance work over there? Yeah, well, you know, I think hypnosis is probably just as old as, um, but not categorized as hypnosis, but um, trance uh, is probably just as old as magic. As you know, some of the earliest magic happened in ancient Egypt with Didi, and, and they did the cups and balls. It's, you know, they, they've shown that. But, yeah. but I think trance has always been, a, well, the thing is here, the thing, Greg, hypnosis and trance is a natural God-given ability. The, the difference about what we do with it is we can do it on demand. I always like to call it controlled daydreaming. That's what it really comes mm. down to. 
Yes. And, and so we do it anyway, all the time. So then when you're in a heightened emotional situation in a, maybe a religious ceremony or something like that, or even uh, for instance, Hitler, when he was doing speeches to the masses. Yeah. Um, now he, he did have a hypnotist that he worked with, Eric Jan Hanussen, who had the Palace of the Occult in, in uh, Germany. Um, and he had, and he actually uh, schooled Hitler and how to use gestures and how to use wow. uh, to use hypnosis on the masses. Did you know that? I'm not sure. If you I actually that. didn't know. Uh, I thought Hitler had a famous magician <laughs> or, or a favorite magician or something. I, no, I didn't know that. I didn't know that this, there was uh, this hypnotic yeah. influence in his life. If you watch, um, there's a movie with Tim Roth called Invincible that talk, is about Hanusen. That's um, interesting. And um, But uh, ultimately, they found out, the SS found out that he was Jewish. So they took him out in the forest and they blew his head off. Oh, but, man. But, but he was the one that actually schooled him. I have the, uh, the book that shows, it has Hitler in it as well. And it talks about how Newson and his, his uh, influence over Hitler. And, and Hitler was totally sold on him. Because as you know, Hitler was really into the occult. And yeah. items and all of that. So Hanusen was a perfect fit for him until ultimately they found out he was Jewish and then it wasn't a perfect fit. But his palace of the occult drew all the rich people uh, in Germany there and um, and they came to him for they had seances nightly. And um, wow. but he was a hypnotist. Why was, do, why was Hitler into the occult? Do you know offhand? Was he just you know, intrigued? I, I'm not exactly sure, but the thing about it is that. Um, I think, well, everyone that gets, there was stories in the Bible, even I forget the tower. Who's the guy who thought he was a wizard and he, he had these powers. You know, there's always people that are a little on the other side. They're looking for something to give them the edge over the enemy or over the people. Yeah. Um, and so they, you know, look back, look back to witch doctors. There's an example right there. So they pursue these occult practices or they create them. And sometimes like with, with, um, the original mesmer they stumble into actually finding how to use them so the hypnosis at least so you know i think through time people seeking power always if they they you look at the cults you can look at cults um uh, manson for instance he certainly used hypnotic control over those people probably didn't know it in his mind but he did it in a he just naturally was able to achieve that that's so, the scary thing when you can naturally do that yeah yeah so I think it's just been something with us all, for all time. And it's just, and especially when you get into religious practices, you, they always excite the imagination or religious service. A good religious service, you start with the music and people come in, the music starts, it gets them all pumped up. And then you, you know, so it actually a uh, good, and again, I, I'm not dissing religion because I happen to be a Christian, okay? But the deal is that a good religious ceremony or service mirrors a good hypnotic show. And, and, and let me tell you, I'm on the side that it it, it is, I believe, I mean, I, <laughs> I think sometimes by talking about the hypnotic principles, they sit in the same way, um, Penn and Teller, this is what I've kind of, I, I mean, I haven't fully wrapped my head around this, but it's partly what I'm trying to do the show. Penn and Teller tell you the principles of magic and still fool you anyways. Yes. Um, that's when I think 
I, I wish hypnosis hypnotists did more, and that's why I'm out here doing this because they're going, this is what how it works, and isn't it awesome that it works like that? Some people oh, would yeah. just go, church, they're doing these things, they're speaking in rhythmic tones, that's how they get you. And I'm going, no, that yeah, that's exa- that's the deep human experience that communicate to someone on that level. Um, that that tells so much about the power of the mind that we don't know. So well, the other thing about it is, Greg, that Hypnosis is an ability God gave us all within us. It's a natural right. ability so that we can help to heal ourselves. And so that's one of the abilities God gave us. So, um, you know, if what I don't like is when Benny Hinn or people like uh, that, that uh, tap into right. using the neg in a way that disgraces it, really. Um, you know, they, they act like they have the power through God intercessing with them and then they can pass it on to you and your healing when really. God gives you the ability to heal yourself, even if you're sitting in your living room. So um, you don't need to have a Benny Hinn or a minister to help you access God's gift to you. Yeah. Well, no, and again, I I, I definitely see that um, there... I'm on the fence of, you know, uh, knowing if there's a power above me or not. I, I, I kind of have been traditionally agnostic, though, starting to uh, see things that seem out of the ordinary. Life has more meaning than than just random particles coming together, seemingly. Sure. Um, well, I mean, with a lot of things that I won't because I don't believe in proselytizing. But but I, I, I will say this, that, you know... Here's what Dunnager used to say about mentalism, but I will say it about being a, a spiritual person like myself. To those who believe, no explanation is necessary. To those who do not, no explanation will suffice. Right, right, right. Yes. Um, by example in my life and that I've been blessed and I believe it's not because of me. I believe there's been some intercession beyond me and and I believe that I've been protected. And, you know, I believe there's angels, too. I believe my grandpa looks after me. And, you know, so there's a lot to my life that I just learned along the way that it became real. It's so you, real to me. You know? I was going to ask, do you like gospel magic? No. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't hear people talk about gospel magic that much anymore. Uh, it used to be, I feel like it used to be much more popular. Uh, well, Andre he, Cole was the guy. But, but well, yeah. He did a wonderful job, you know, at it. Um, he might be one of the only ones that I liked. And the reason I liked it was because he did a wonderful magic show. And then he invited people, to, if they wanted to leave, they could, or they could stay and listen to what right. he had. To say. So I, I had to, re- I respect him for that because he didn't, he didn't try to interse- intermix it with his regular show. He'd do a fantastic show. As you know, he created the table of death and many other things. And um, that were so fantastic, but, but he would, um, he would do a fantastic show, a good long hour and a half show. They said, we're going to take an intermission for 10 minutes. If you'd like to stay, I have something I'd like to talk to you about. But if you don't, that's great. I hope you enjoy the performance. So that that's a cool way to go about it. Yeah, I know. It feels so... It feels as if in the same way that, you know, it's comedy magic or or really the yeah. better is trade show magic where you're yes. promoting this company's product and you're still doing the linking rings, but you're just tying over. That's your patter. It's the patter of the Lord. Um, so, yeah, I don't even know how it came about. Like, what is the history? I, I'd love to do a documentary about the history of gospel magic and how weird it is, because it seems weird to me. It is odd. And I, I, you know, I never have liked it. I've always felt it's kind of cheapens God and religion. 
Um, I don't like it. I just don't like the concept at all. But again, if you do it like Andre Cole putting on a world-class show and then just saying, I'd like to share some with you afterwards, if you have time, that's okay. You know, I get that, you know, but when you're yeah. doing like, uh, when you're doing Clippo or something with a thing of Jesus or something, you know, Clippo right. listening is where you take a rabbit and it's made out of newspaper. You cut it and you keep cutting it. It gets shorter, but it stays one piece and stays a rabbit. So that's what I was referring to, but, or hippity hop, you know, gods or something. I mean, <laughs> right. Not, this is not glorifying God if you really believe in God by doing something on that level. So I think doing a good magic show and then sharing, then giving the opportunity to share your feelings afterwards is fine, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, back to this this notion of the um the fuckers and, and people oh, yeah. that naturally go into trance. Um I mean what did you what uh when, when it comes to sticking things through your cheek and yeah. uh the things that you were witnessing back then how much of it was trickery versus actually doing it none of it none of it was trickery it was all real it was all real and unbelievable and it was believable because i saw them close up doing this um it was amazing um they would go in the in the case of the kinjay in thailand they go in there and they they go in such a deep state of trance well, of course, you know, Greg, that they use it for surgeries now. I mean, yeah. you can use, if, you, if you're allergic to anesthesia, you can go through a thyroidectomy or you can even, I have even seen, and this is insane, but I've seen open heart surgery done with hypnosis on wow. video. Um, and I, you know, I work at the Unger Medical Group here in Rancho Cucamonga, California. Dr. Unger is the one that brought Ozempic to market. You probably hear Ozempic for diabetics. Um, the, the Ozempic, you know, with the magic song. Right. Anyway. He's one of the one of the doctors that brought that to market. So I'm very honored to work at his uh, concierge group, helping people with hypnotherapy. But I have seen these surgeries. So what is the difference between getting a thyroidectomy or getting a uh, you know open heart surgery? That's even more drastic than putting spears through your cheeks. Yeah. What is it? I mean, is it just that the culture allowed these people to be able to? value the other parts of their mind more because they were already tapping into it. That's why it got passed down to them. I mean, I'm just wondering, what is it that requires us to have to watch a TED talk on hypnosis to even believe it's real over there here in the powers of our mind versus these other countries where it's just a natural state that they can get into to uh, combat pain in that profound way? I think a lot of the basis of it is fear. Um, you know, ever since uh, back when they wrote the book Trilby uh, in France in the 1815 or whatever it was, can't remember the date off the top of my head, excuse me on that, but Trilby, which became Svengali, the film, yes. but we up till even um, Get Out recently, a couple of years back, the movie Get <laughs> yeah. Out, um, the media and comic books and books in general have always made the hypnotist, the, the evil person, the, the bad guy, the uh, criminal. Uh, and that you're going to be lose control of your mind. You're going to lose control of who you are. You're going to do things you don't want to do. Um, and so because of that, it's very deeply ingrained in the Western culture's mind that hypnosis is a no-no or a dangerous thing to be involved in. And in the religion part of it, our Western religions tend to shy away from it because they try to frame it as something that's evil or uh, negative or um, you know of the devil or whatever uh, because but yeah, and yet a lot of ministers use the same abilities without even knowing it 
Um, so I think it's so deeply ingrained that way that we tend to just shrug it off. Uh, we just don't want to face it. We don't, even on a subconscious level, we're, even if we think, oh, we're just skeptics, well, really, we may be just even scared or have a fear of it ultimately deep down. So um, it's all about education and people in the Western world learning that there is a spiritual world and it does go beyond uh, just what we see in front of our face. You know, in school, Greg, they always teach us what to put in our head. They never teach us how to master our mind. Yes. That, that's where hypnosis comes in. Yes. Yes. So with you there. So with you. Yeah. Um, let me ask you your thoughts on this. I, I've asked this before to uh, other people on the show, but um, okay. gypsy hypnosis, quote unquote, um, this idea that you can go into a store and I mean, there, there were clips of this. I don't know how fake they were, but there were clips of supposed people walking into stores and, and saying a couple words to the person confusing them and then and taking the money out of the cash register. And supposedly this goes back to a tradition of these hypnotic arts that were secret and within these uh, families. And of course, you have the stereotype of the gypsy. I mean, even Stephen King has used that before um, in, in the book Thinner. I remember that as a gypsy comes up to his face and goes puts his finger on his face and goes thinner and then he just keeps getting thin and thin and thin so you, you do have this archetypal thing um in your travels around the world is it just a myth or or do people uh have this advanced skill to be able to confuse and quote unquote stick people in a mesmerized state well there's many answers many different ways to answer that um i do street hypnosis all the time um so I can walk up to someone on the street and I can create a hypnotic event. Um, not necessarily a deep trance, not necessarily um, for therapy level, but I can instantly create a trance, uh, a um, hypnotic state and a suggestibility state with people. Right. Um, and you have the context, of course. You're, they know you're a hypnotist. Um, um, sometimes. And sometimes. Oh, tell me about that. Tell me when they don't know. Well, I mean, I mean that. okay, no, that's true. They do. But they'll challenge me a lot of times. It'll be a challenge, which is even more difficult in a way because they're skeptical. So yeah. they'll have seen an event. I'll be in a uh, Whataburger in Texas and they'll say, we saw your show. I don't believe you can do this. Show me. I want to see you hypnotize me. And so then you, it's like a challenge, like Houdini, you know, and um, I'll go in and I'll make, I'll make them where they can't swallow or I'll make their eyes, you know, as you know, an eye lock or I'll, the call off eye lock or one of the, one of those, or I'll freeze their arm, whatever. So I can create a hypnotic state almost instantaneously with anyone. But what you're talking about is a slight bit different. Um, now you can go into the conversational hypnosis, which is a whole nother aspect. And that's more similar to what you're talking about. If you have a little more time with people, you can through conversation, gently tug them into it. Now, as far as just walking in and doing what you're saying on a TV show, they have some pre-show work or they have some kind of setup there. Um, uh, the guy over in England who's so popular that's a magician. Also, Darren Brown. Yeah, you can bet that previous to what you see on on the TV, there's been some setup. Now, a lot of times it may not involve him. Um, for instance, um, I won't mention it, but I was originally in a mentalist show in Vegas. And he's very good and very well known, but he has his people come out and talk to people ahead of time. So when they're with him on stage, you know, you've never met me, right? No, I've never met you. You don't know who I am, no? Well, no, they never met him, but they've experienced some of the people they were out when we were waiting in line or right. Whatever. So you can bet Darren Brown has 
some type of person who may even be a skilled hypnotist that encounters these people previous to his arrival. Yeah, yeah. Not to invalidate it. Um, it's just that they're trying to portray it in a way that maybe makes people even more of a non-believer than they need to be. Whereas they would see the process, they would be equally as amazed, but they would also, but they would also not doubt it as much. So I wish right. they wouldn't do that. I wish they wouldn't do that type of thing. Um, now, in, over in Asia, you probably could pull that off because they have such deep-seated beliefs in the spiritual world and all that. You probably could pull something like that off. That might be it. I mean, what in in the classic example is the uh, the hypno sculpture videos that were going on for a while. I don't know if right. you've ever seen that, but yeah. the fact that this guy could go up to people and for some people now this is the thing to remember about that everybody this is the the human bias right we focus on the ones that worked he did show sometimes where he'd go up to strangers do a handshake induction and no. they would just start running after him and then he'd have to run the other direction uh but there were times where this guy would and supposedly the script he was using was you know let me uh yeah and he would just grab their hand and talk about smelling a rose because he sprayed this rose perfume on his palm and they'd be very confused and he'd leave them just staying there and oh, yeah. for, for them not to move i mean that is exactly that that is a quote-unquote uh no context whatsoever covert supposedly induction there there's a covert there's a little well, trickery that, involved that can happen with certain cultures certain people but again yeah. part of my job as hypnotists is we can although all people can be hypnotized all people can't reach a deep level of hypnosis nor a rapid level of hypnosis. All people can experience it. We all do it, as I mentioned earlier. Um, when you're driving, you say, how did I get here so quick? Or, or, or you know, wow, you've been, you were in trance, you know? Or when you watch TV and someone, your wife says something to you and you don't even remember what this person said to you after the show, you're in trance with the TV set. So everybody is suggestible. Everybody can achieve hypnosis, but not everybody can do it as quickly as you stated. But again, we're able to sort of size up there's only certain personality types that you that you experience in life as you go along. So you can you can gauge certain personality types that are more apt to be open to quickly being uh, into a hypnotic state versus others that, you know, are going to be more uh, resistant. That I, I find it interesting that you do uh, do the old challenge hypnosis thing, because that some people wouldn't touch that. Um, even even established stage hypnotists. Um, uh, my mentor one of one of the guys I study with Justin Trance. Um, oh, yeah, 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 I'm sure you know him. <laughs> yeah. He he is he is a challenge hypnotist. I mean, that's his entire brand. He will oh, yeah. anybody. He will he, it doesn't matter how he's skeptical. Really best at that at street hypnosis. He's really amazing at it. Um I'm pretty close to but i have to hand it to him he's he's awesome at street hypnosis yeah i mean and, and he has the techniques to back it up and definitely the confidence he will he will keep working with you until he gets you to state that you had an experience right. that you couldn't explain otherwise i mean when you're going into challenge situation like that um you know is it just is it your intent that pushes you through is it or do you try multiple methods until you take it at a certain point do you go well this person's just not following the instructions um well, you know, so my opinion if you can't if you're a hypnotist you should be able to do hypnosis any way necessary um if you don't have that toolbox that skill set you better study more because yeah. you, you know if you're just like you're a magician if you walk into somewhere and say can you do something for me you better be ready to do something now 
I can do mentalism without any props or anything. So if I walk in and someone challenges me that way, I'll do something. Same with hypnosis. If I'm, you know, and I'll tell you some of the hardest places to do it is, well, I was telling you about that millionaire party I, I did in uh, Beverly Hills last year. Um, you know, those people are the most jaded and they're, they don't want to be exposed in front of their friends that way. But, um, you know, I just walk up and I, I did street hypnosis all over that party, you know? That and, is amazing that you did something as someone might say as risky as hypnosis at a high profile event. And there I wasn't even a hypnotist. I was there to do my danger match. So they weren't even expecting me to do any kind of hypnosis. So there was no setup as, oh, he's a hypnotist. But I said, wow. hey, you ever experienced hypnosis? Let me show you something. And I get him up and it's one of the most beautiful ladies and their finery and everything. And boom, you know, there you go. You know, so um, you got to have that. If you don't have that confidence level, then you got to go back to school and you got to find it. You got to find your center because if you don't, you're never going to be effective as you can be as a hypnotist. If you're just going to go by script, and go out and do your script and do your set thing, then you're never truly a hypnotist. You're just a guy performing hypnosis. Yeah. Wait, you know what? I got to ask you this. Um, <laughs> I, assuming that you haven't signed a non-disclosure agreement over this, have you ever have you ever got a celebrity into a hypnosis? Yeah, I have state? mentioned them. Yeah, that's right. You can't um, say it. You can't say it. They made you sign something? No, in fact, I have a story in my book coming out next year, my ghost hunting book. And I did a ghost uh, investigation, a very famous drummer from a very famous rock band over in Pacific Palisades. Uh, I tell the story in the book, but I can't mention any names. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I feel the most, I mean, uh, <laughs> oh gosh, Dr. Richard Bandler, founder of NLP, um, questionably a doctor right. or not, but he hypnotized Michael, what did he, Michael Strahan on Kelly and okay. uh, Michael and Kelly. I think he did like a phobia thing. So that's an example of somebody using hypnosis techniques. Um, I know that, I mean, we have the famous one with Chris Jones on America's Got Talent and Howie Mandel, um, but it's rare to me that, you know, you talk about that time that that celebrity went into trance publicly. Usually it's, oh, this person went to see this hypnotist to work on their act acting um right so, right they do. <laughs> yeah 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 i don't know hoping i no, could they, get something out of you <laughs> they don't want to show any weakness i guess and you know some people feel that hypnosis points out that you're a weak-minded person which is totally the opposite as you know the more intelligent you are the more focused you are the better you can do hypnosis but because there's that you know thing about it people don't want to be fingered that way because they think people think oh they're they're idiots or they're fools or they're dumb or they're the dumb-headed blonde or whatever you know so right. yeah that's where it comes from i think yeah that'll be interesting if we get to a world where the mind mastering the mind which I, it's rapidly becoming that world it seems um but mastering the mind is such a thing that you know you don't just need michael phelps to talk about therapy and promote talk space you have people going yeah i'm a professional actor i use hypnosis and i think everybody should because there's so much more in your mind that you don't even know you're capable of using uh, i caution people listening to this that might be interested in studying hypnosis don't ever let someone else master your mind. You need to learn to master, you need to master your own mind. So many times you go to a guru, um, Gil, you say that means G-U-R-U, -U, but, um, but you go to, a guru, <laughs> you go to a guru thinking that they know more than you. They don't know any more than you. They have more knowledge base, but um, you have the same skill set within you. You just have to unlock it and learn how to use it. So never go to someone 
and let them be a Charlie Manson to you or something like that, or a Jim Jones, go to someone, realize that you're going to equal or better them ultimately through the teaching they give you. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Michael, I don't know how much more time you have, but I definitely have more questions. Sure, have a little more? <laughs> okay. Okay. So let me ask you this then. Um, different than what you were thinking it was going to be so <laughs> <laughs> no, no 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 we're all over the place but this is this is great um okay so what how do you what would you recommend in terms of um preventing that i mean i i think people uh get brainwashed unknowingly all the time yeah and it's scary it is scary how it quickly is. someone can find themselves in a cult situation and not even know i mean are there things that people can do to prevent themselves ahead of time? Do you, do you, do, do you, I, I think that's why it's good to actually part of the service that uh, you're doing by being on the show. And, and I'm trying to do is, is educate people enough to spot it. Um, but not everybody gets that training. And frankly, sometimes these institutions don't want you to get that training because that's what, how they thrive. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, what would you say? I mean, for somebody that like starts to feel themselves get into a situation or um, yeah, so they don't get into it. Is there a way to protect your mind from getting brainwashed? Well, I think the thing is um, so many times people go to a mentor looking to attach to them. So they gain somehow that what they are rubs off on them. Hmm. And you've got to always be yourself and keep, and be, stay yourself. If you feel that something doesn't match up with your morality or your belief systems, you can still learn from that person, but don't let that person, like I say, don't let them master your mind. You ma you're there to master your own mind. You got to keep that focus. So many people, um, this is what happened with, with all the cults, whether it's Jim Jones and Guyana or whatever, they went there because they felt that that was a place of comfort for them from the world. And then in being with them, they became that sort of be, in a way became that person. They, it rubbed, they were now equal or as good as that, that they became part of that thing. You don't want to become part of anything. You want to stay your own self, but you want to learn the techniques that will help you enhance that self. So the best thing to do is have, you know, well, when you go to classes, always have, you know, eventually you'll meet someone that you'll kind of be in tune with, have a buddy that goes, that, you know, there, you know, keeps check each other, you know, don't let, you know, because when you're in hypnosis class, especially naturally, I, when I was in Gil's class, I was hypnotized almost every day. So yeah. it's very, very, even when just watching him, when he's demonstrating, you start dropping into that, you know? And so, um, but if you have people around you that, you know, and you guys can talk about after the day is over when you're learning um, or whatever, but always stay in touch with your family. If you start feeling, you know, that you're, these people are more important than your family or the people you trust in your life. Don't let that happen. Always remember your best friends or your whatever, your wife, friends, family, whoever's there for you. Um, they're always the people that are your anchor. The other thing is always, like I was saying with the show business, basically, the other thing is your business. It's a class. You're learning to do it, but it's not your life. Your people that you love you and care about you are your life. And if you have no one that does care about you, then maybe you'll make a good friend in the class and you can depend on each other to make sure that you check what's going on and don't let it get out of hand. Yeah. Yeah, no, very good advice. Very good advice. Um, you know, before we move into the realm of the paranormal and, and even monsters and magic, which, again, is truly all the themes. I mean, we're talking about, like, fake monsters and how the magic behind it. And then we're talking about real monsters, quote unquote. And and um, so, so, yes, definitely a loopy conversation. But 
curious about your thoughts on Gil Boyne. Um, you had Orman McGill, who we mentioned earlier, founder of, uh, you know, he wrote the Encyclopedia of Stage Hypnosis. Right. Often gets a lot of criticism. Justin Trance very publicly criticizes him, and Justin yeah. was a Gil Boyne student um, for just being kind of boring and old-fashioned and, you know, the induction is taking forever. Now, look, I've seen footage of Orman McGill, and, and certainly by the end, I mean, I, I was – the amount of clout he had in the later demonstrations, which I'm sure played a role into him succeeding, at least it, it was great to watch watch it, even though it may have not been the quickest. Um, what do you think, Gil? Oh, tell me, tell me what you think of him. By that point, Greg, he was like the gunfighter that had all the notches on his belt and on his gun, so he could walk in and no one was going to draw on him. You know, so yes, he just by reputation, their imagination. And again, he was mostly performing for hypnotherapists and hypnotists. Yes. So he, he was revered. So when he walked in, he didn't have to do anything to excite your imagination. You already knew it in your head. So they were willing to let go and get into that self-hypnosis mode. But, you know, Orman, you know, he toured during World War II. He did a lot of things. He was also a very skilled magician as well. Mm -hmm. And so, in fact, he and I performed in 19... It was in 1980 at the Pacific Coast Association of Magicians Convention wow. uh, in... Portland, Oregon, he and I did the big grand show at the finale of the convention. And he did his Hawaiian magic with his wife, Delight. And I did my electric chair escape. But anyway, um, he, so cool. um, but he was, but in his heyday, of course, things were slower in those days. You know, yeah. people did expect, well, you look at Houdini, how many hours did he spend doing the escape in a trunk or something? He'd be, he'd actually sit behind the curtain after he'd already escaped smoking a cigar and reading a newspaper. And people would just sit in the audience for like two hours waiting for him to get out. So, <laughs> Weird. This was, so in those days, people didn't process information so quickly. So his style was appropriate to the 1930s, the 1940s, and that and into the 50s. Um, and then, he, he, of course, that was his style and he kept it. So, yes, to today's audience, to our sensibilities, to the way we do hypnosis instantaneously now, it's a very slow process. But in, the t in his time, it was the appropriate way of doing what he did. Yeah. And what, and what do you think Gil, uh, I, I don't really know too much about, you know, how he came upon his um, transformational hypnotherapy and, and, and just going so quick. I mean, that's the thing. You can watch videos of Gil Boyne. Um, some of them might be illegal, really, but but they're on YouTube. You can watch him do quick instant yeah. inductions that look better than some Vegas magicians I've seen working today for a fact. I know that's true. Um, or well, Vegas hypnotists, rather. And yeah, yeah, how did he get there? He he seems like such a, a very ahead of his time. Well, you know, it was Orman that inspired him. Um, so it came Orman, then came Gill, you know. Um, but of course, I would... I have to mention, of course, that Pat Collins was the most, the only famous hypnotist probably of all time stage hypnotist. Um, I don't think anybody's, well, you could include Kreskin too, because he's actually was a hypnotist as well, but yeah. he doesn't promote it. He's a suggestion. But the truth is he started with the American Guild of Hypnotism. He used to do their banquets and do hypnosis shows for them. Uh, and then he became what we know as Kreskin now, who's the greatest mentalist probably of all time. So, but, but as far as pure and, he, and Kreskin was not famous for his hypnosis, although it's still part of his performance suggestion. Yeah. But um, Pat Collins is the only famous hypnotist on a level of a David Copperfield or a level of a Doug Henning that ever existed, really. Um, and so I have to mention her along the way, although Gill and her were at odds ends because he felt she wasn't that skilled as a hypnotist. 
Um, and yet she did fantastic shows. She had her own nightclub on Sunset Boulevard. Um, she used to hypnotize people like Marlon Brando and all sorts of people in her shows there. Um, right. But she was the hip hypnotist, the hypnotist, the celebrity hypnotist. She was on Johnny Carson, she did movies uh, with Dick Van Dyke. She was on the Lucy show. So she's really the only superstar of hypnosis that ever was, really. Um, and I don't know why that is, but that's how it is. So, um, but Gil was like me and like Justin. Gil, we both studied with him. And Gil can, could hypnotize anyone, anytime, anywhere. He was fearless. And he started out as an altar boy. He was a tough guy, grew up in Philadelphia. And he was a boxer when he was younger and all sorts of things. And he just, he was tough. And when he did hypnosis, he had, there was no quarter. It was like, you're going to get hypnotized right now, whether you like it or not. <laughs> right. He, he didn't say that, but that's what it was. And there was nobody I ever saw that he couldn't knock right into hypnosis. Sometimes he'd have to fight him a little bit, but he, he was like a boxer, a boxer of hypnosis. He's going to box you in a corner and make you do it. And he was intimidating. And he was at a time when there was misogynistic stuff and all that, but he was, he was a good man and he was so skilled at hypnosis. And I'll tell you what, he had a deep passion for helping people. And I think that's one of the secrets when you're getting him to therapy. If you want to really get people in hypnosis quickly, if you have an inner passion and inner care to help people, I think that enhances your skills and your ability, no matter whether it's verbalized or not. That's a great point. That is a great point in terms of, uh, yeah, sometimes you can focus a little too much on the trick in magic right. and not the experience, the overall experience for the right. spectator. Um, right. And even that word spectator is questionable. But yeah, with hypnosis, sometimes it's, okay, am I going to get them in? Am I going to get them into trance? Are they going to go in? Um, I know I fall into that trap in the past. Um, yeah, I, never, I never have a doubt. Justin never has a doubt. We just have no doubt. Yeah. I've been pretty tough. Uh, and um, I still make it happen. Um, I, uh, I've been in some really tough situations. Um, and sometimes I'm in a group in a private party where there's only 20 people, 20 guests, and none of them knew a hypnotist was coming, uh, except for the host. And I tell them, hey, let them know. But they didn't let it, they don't let them know. And then I get maybe two people up there and I do an hour show. Oh, man. Oh gosh, this sounds like me and my my murder mystery company career too. It's uh, that when you don't tell them that they're about to do an interactive show, it can be so difficult. And to do that to a hypnotist, oh my gosh! But because I'm good at street trance and all that, I just like Justin, like Gil. He didn't call it street trance in his time of street hypnosis, but he was he was he did was able to do it. But um, you know, I'll give you I'll give you an example. I went out to the mall one time. Uh, during the hypnosis conference, I want to show some people what street hypnosis is about. And I found a lady that was just a, at a booth selling stuff at a kiosk in the mall. I said, have you ever thought about being hypnotized? Yeah. Uh, well, we're hypnotists. Want to check it out? Yeah. And then I put it right in hypnosis, right in the middle of a busy mall. Everybody's staring and everything. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But but you have to have that confidence level. And that's what Gil had. He had a passion and a love for helping people. And then he felt totally confident because Hey, look, hypnosis is nothing compared to being in a boxing ring. Yeah. Do you feel that you have, um, you know, not that you've needed to, and I know that stage hypnotists that are working sometimes give a lot of crap to people that start for being obsessed with the techniques and the induction and not on the entertainment piece, which clearly you're passionate about. But uh, in terms of techniques and hypnosis, I mean, 
Do you feel like you've discovered anything over the years? Do you have a different approach to inductions or or any of the aspects of suggestion that you would say, yeah, 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 no, this is definitely something that um, I've used and, and perfected that um, I, I've never seen anybody else do before? You know, it's so complex, that answer, because I've done four-hour seminars trying to even semi explain that (laughs) really yeah the michael mesmer technique of hypnosis i mean does it exist yeah well i it's a combination of all those that came before me and all that i learned from all my mentors in particular gill and and uh, orman but also even pat collins um so she had you know one of the exciting the imagination starts with the opening talk to a great extent and i think she had the best opening talk of any stage feminist i've ever heard of and you know once you get past that you should be able to drop people in trance right away. So there's a lot of parts to what I, I'm a, I'm the sum of all the parts actually, but I also think it's like art. Um, you can learn from a lot of other people, but ultimately it's what comes out of your heart and soul that makes the difference. And I think the strongest tool I have is my skill at doing the hypnotic gaze. Oh, the hypnotic gaze. That's Mesmer's thing too, right? Yeah. Um, the hypnotic gaze, a lot of hypnotherapists and hypnotists have never learned it, don't really understand it, don't know how to master it. Orman um, McGill talks about it in the book, and I've never heard anybody talk about it besides him, really. Yeah. And the hypnotic gaze is a powerful, powerful tool because what's what do they always say? The eyes are the window to the soul. So if you're doing if you're doing instant induction, I go down. Sometimes when I do a show, I won't do the, the fractional. I'll just go right down to instant induction so if you have the power a powerful hypnotic gaze you're looking into their eyes they're looking yours actually you look past their eyes about six foot past them in a spot you look to the that spot go back and you're still focused on that spot rather than their eyes but yet you're focused right into their looking right into their eyes so you're going into their soul and there's a transfer of energy there i'm not saying it's supernatural it's just something natural within our our as people and you're changing that energy at that moment and it's overwhelming I mean, yeah. how many times do people stare into someone else's eyes? Not very often. So if you know, you'll look and you'll look back and forth, you'll visit. But to have someone focus on your eyes, you focus on them and going through them and creating that energy connection, it's just a powerful tool. And I think that's one of the most powerful tools I have in my toolkit of hypnosis. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and certainly, you know, again, I, I, I should correct myself. I mean, I've, I've read about it in Milton Eric's Erickson did right. a version, but he went into trance and, and I, I I've certainly ho- heard, um, other people mention the power of, uh, intent and eye contact, but not that really energetic, component in that in the way the fascination piece and using it in a useful way um besides Orman McGill and I guess Rasputin in a way too yeah Yeah, and you have to the thing about is with Gil myself Justin you you have to not only believe that no matter what this person is going to hypnotize you know what you what it comes down to is you you see them hypnotize before you hypnotize them you already see them as Mm. hypnotized before you even start doing whatever you're going to do whether it's rapid or whatever even if it's fractional I've seen this group, to me, in my mind, I see them hypnotized already before I even start hypnotizing them. Wow, that is, if you're a hypnotist listening to this, he, he just gave away something really powerful. Um, yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so yeah. look, let's um, 
for the last little bit here. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, well, we'll see if it's a little bit. I don't know. Okay. Um, but uh, let's talk about the, the realm of the ghosts and the monsters. Now, look, there are two things here. First of all, you wrote this article about classic horror films and magic um that yeah. that's up for an award let's let's talk about that first because it's the most immediate thing um yeah where where did the, the inspiration for this article come from and 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 what are some of the things that we can learn from that series well i've been writing for scary monsters magazine um they're the last of the classic monster magazines uh they're the interiors i'll show you but the audience will be able to see but they're in black and white like the old magazines oh so cool yeah, in fact, and, and then the covers are beautifully done in color, but there are 175 pages, most of them. And um, so I've been writing for them for about five years. Uh, I started with a fan letter to them, and then I always had a, wanted to write. And so they said, would you like to write an article? So I did. And then I've done many articles um, since then. And I'll show you the cover of Monsters and Magic here. It looks pretty cool, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the skull. Is- the eyes has a skull in the mirror they do wonderful artwork i don't do the artwork vicky simmeraldi on there and her husband don they're the people that produce it and they do amazing layouts and beautiful art they make my article look way better than the writing um but in any case i wrote this article of monsters and magic because it's been something on my mind for a long time and i should mention my wife susie does all my editing because i would look totally uh unintelligent without her help uh, she's she knows periods and commas and how to put things yeah she's the t- retired teacher and does a wonderful job for me. But um, in any case, um, I decided to write this article because I'd always been fascinated by all the movies, the classic horror movies and monster movies that had magic in them. The ones that had real magic. I mean, what I mean, real magic, theatrical magic. Um, because there's a lot of movies where they use movie magic um, to simulate what we do. But this article is based on all the movies that actually have real magic in them, real legitimate organic magic theatrical magic and i'm all i've been a monster fan since i was young um and uh i've always enjoyed the classic horror movies and from dracula on up um i even spent a day on the dark shadow set one time but that's a whole other oh that's very cool yeah with jonathan fred barnabas and all of them i spent a whole day and uh so i've always been a monster fan all my life it's because my brother was on broadway and he's with william morris and he got me into the set for a day but anyway long story but uh, I wrote a whole article on that, about 6,000 words. But anyway, <laughs> this one is a 10,000, about a 10,000 word, uh, two-part article in one, uh, uh, number 121 and 122 of Scary Monsters magazine. And in it, oh, and also I should mention Max Maven because I consulted with him to get a few of the uh, historical points that I needed to complete the oh article. Oh my gosh, that guy is just, I mean, uh, the best, the best. Yeah. If you don't know Max it Maven, does- that's... uh. Oh, he's, he's a mentalist, folks, but he's also knows a lot about the history of magic. And he's a creator of magic. But sadly, Max has had brain cancer issues. I'm, he's not in good health. Oh, yeah. Sorry to hear that. That's very sad. Yeah. yeah, he was a, um, uh, I mean, also just a guy that knew, has read everything about everything. <laughs> From what I've heard, he just yes. always know he he's read every book and he's a library of that book, knew it all. Um, oh, and, and by the way, he, he also has a, his, he also has a name. Max Maven is not his name. When he creates things, he does it under his real name of Phil Goldstein. That's so, right. That's right. Uh, did you ever know? Did you ever meet uh, Ray Goulet in Watertown, Massachusetts? Never did. Okay. I hear, heard about him all. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, he, he's the one I learned about that as a young kid. I mean, I went to the Magic Art Studio there all the time growing up in Boston, and uh, oh. he he was the one that one day, I remember he showed me the trick B-Wave at oh, yeah. Dubai, which is one of Max Maven's greatest. I mean, some people still say it's one of the best mentalism card tricks of all time. Um, and... He said, hey, Phil Goldstein, you know who that is? That guy on the TV shows that does the tricks through the television? Yeah, same guy. <laughs> and that blew my mind. So that's why that came oh, up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> Max Maven, such an innovator. And oh, yeah. um, if you want to do magic through your computer screen, just type Max Maven into YouTube and you'll find a treasure trove of interactive tricks um, that still hold up. Oh, yeah. If you ever watch the David Copperfield special where he has you touch the screen, that's Max that told him how to do it. But but yeah, so I appreciate his help because I had some questions about some of the things that I couldn't find uh, any information on. But it starts way back with uh, in 19 or 18, uh, the 1800s with uh, Dumariere, who did all the silent films, because, you know, the first um, he was a magician. And so then he took he said, I want to do something more than just on stage. So he developed magic on the movie in the movies. In fact, a lot of the techniques he developed were are still being used to this day. Um, but he actually did the first horror film. Uh, it's considered the first horror film uh, in the in the movies, uh, and it was called. I have it here. I can't recall it offhand. It's called The Haunted Castle from 1896. Wow. So started back with Dumeriere, and then I go through up to Houdini because you know. Houdini was a silent film movie star, as I'm sure you know. Right. And, um, you know, if you want to see Houdini, how he really performed, that's the only record of it, really. Because you can watch those films, and at the end of each film, he has an escape. Many of them he actually did in his show. So that's the way to access and really see what Houdini really was like. We hear a lot about Houdini. We've seen a lot of movies depicting him. But if you really want to see Houdini as Houdini, those are the films, The Man from Beyond, um, Maldana, the Secret Service, all those, they're all available on YouTube actually now, which is kind of crazy. But, um, but yeah, so I talk about him. I go through all the eras, um, all the way up to David Copperfield and Terror Train. Um, and who, and I talk about who built the props for the films, uh, Owen Magic, all different people, even Lon Chaney in um, West of Zanzibar, uh, the original Lon Chaney in the silent film era, who I think was the greatest actor of all time, in my opinion. But um, but and he did magic in that film, and I traced back where the magic was from. Uh, you know, from the old days, who built it, and uh, how he, if there was a coach on there, and all that. So, but without revealing secrets in the whole article, I taught I wanted to open people's minds to where the magic was created and how it got on film and how it became what it was. That's very interesting. Um, so, when, when when you're talking about theatrical magic. Does that then mean it's a monster movie where somebody is playing a magician or, yeah. or is it just any kind of sleight of hand? Yeah. Okay. So you're, you're saying that's well, actually the act of a, being a conjurer is. Well, constantly... sometimes, sometimes. Um, uh, in, in the article, I also touched on some other ones that had actual magic, but they weren't magicians in them. Now I do cover like the mad magician, for instance, with Vincent Price, mm. um, and there was a magician in that movie consulting him that was actually doing the magic as the assistant, but it looked like he was like he did the vanishing bird cage um, with the canary, the Blackstone cage. But it was that he cut, uh, you know, Vincent Price would cover it in the assistant's hands and the assistant made it disappear, really. But it 
they filmed it so it looked like it was Vincent Price doing the magic, you see. Very interesting. What do you think is the most impressive? Um, sorry to cut you off. What were you going to say? <laughs> I, I, got, I got my question queued up. What were you going to say? Okay. Well, I was going to say, sadly, most of these magicians, that's why I wanted to write the article. Most of the builders and magicians who consulted, they didn't get a screen credit. Like, I'm um, uh, sure they other, didn't. You know, like yeah. stuff would get it, makeup, hair, all that. But the magicians didn't get any screen credits, uh, very rarely. And so it's really exciting for me to be able to finally bring to light these people that really, really made a great contribution to the movie industry in their own way. Yeah, yeah. I I was going to ask, you know, for that time period captured on film, what do you think is the most incredible of those illusions that, that someone would go, I truly have no idea how that was done? Um, yeah, I'm curious. You know, it's so rough because there's so many great films. The Amazing Mr. X is another one, Trahan Bay. Um, and they have a magician in that. It's an inspector. He plays the role of the inspector, but he's actually a real magician that was president of Assembly 22 here in Los Angeles of the Society of American Magicians. So there's a lot of good magic throughout all the movies. Um, I liked a lot of the magic in The Time Travelers, which was a 1964 film. No magician in that, but Owen Magic built all the illusions for it. So there's some really cool illusions in it. What, so, it, what what kind of thing are we talking about there? I love to, as you know, I love time travel. Um, but what, yeah, what <laughs> what kind of stuff is there? Well, you know, um, there's a transporter effect they use in it, which was an Owens thing where you lay on a person on the table and it flips over and the board drops and they di- they disappear. Well, in this, they present it as a time travel thing where it flipped over, dropped, and the guy transported. So oh. there's these beautiful illusions in it. Um, there's something as simple as the card frame. You know, where you make a card appear in the glass, two pieces of glass that Owen's built. I'll show you, I'll show you the photo of it right now so you can see it right there. Oh, yeah. Um, and they use, that, they use that to be a viewer to see things in other places so they could make an image appear on there of someone. Um, and um, classic actors in there, too, that were on Star Trek and other things. That's a cool movie, The Time Travelers. It's from 1964. If you ever get a chance, if you like time travel movies, it's kind of fun. I think you'd like it. Yeah, I got to check that out. That's so cool to see that as a remote viewer. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a prop you would see at one of these old uh, brick and mortar magic shops on the yeah. on the top display. I'm pretty sure Ray Goulet had one at his place, but to yeah. see it in that context, it's totally different. Yeah, they use photos to, to appear in the center of it like they're viewing things from a distance, you see. Um, yeah. And then about um, uh, two on a guillotine with Connie Stevens. And as I mentioned earlier, I worked with Connie Stevens when I was starting in theater. In fact, I'll show you the photo there of me and Connie both before and then recently. That's that's us. I don't know if I can get it on there, but that's there. There I am when I was in Wizard of Oz with Connie. And then there, I'm showing folks these photos. There I am with Connie about a year and a half ago. But um, in Two and a Guillotine, Cesar Romero is a mad magician, too. He supposedly died, but he really didn't. He killed his wife with a guillotine. So there's a lot of cool illusions in all these films. Yeah, no, I mean, I I think it's awesome, and that I'm that so, you. Do- I'm so pleased because I've been nominated, as I mentioned to you off off uh, talk for a Rondo Award, which is the Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Film Awards. Um, I'm so glad that Magic finally has an entry because there's never been an article like this before, and um, there's you know big hitters uh, with books like Stephen King. They're nominated for those awards. Uh, big films like Dune are nominated for Film of the Year. And uh, so I've been nominated for Best Article along with about eight other people. And I'm very excited to uh, be able to have 
you know, an article on magic recognized that way. Yeah, yeah, I know. And uh, is there anything we can do to help this award get pushed through? There really, um, you can vote for me. Um, and so the way to do that, just go to the Rondo Hatton Awards and scroll down to where the awards start. If you go down to best article, all, you don't have to vote for everything. It'll look like there's a hundred things to vote for, but just yeah. go down to article and all you have to do is just cut and paste where it says what I'm up for. And then you email it to at taraco.allo.com to a guy named David and say, you're voting for me. That's all you have to do. It's very simple. Um, but, but yeah, you'll get kind of sidetracked if you look at all the nominations because there's hundreds, a hundred things there. But if you go down to best article, you'll find Michael Mesmer of Monsters and Magic and you just, Cut and paste that, put it on email, and then send it the email they have on there, which is Taraco at AOL.com. I'd really appreciate it if people would do voting because it would really be helpful to further the magic, you know? Yeah, well, we we will link to that for everybody um, to help you out, Michael, for sure. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, look, so the final the, top. <laughs> Sorry? You want to buy the article you can go to the scary monsters website because i think a lot of people that are into magic would love reading it um i don't make any money off of it it's just i think they would enjoy it but it's mymoviemonsters.com is where you go to find scary monsters magazine and it's issues 121 and 122 and they're still available some are sold out some of the other issues around it but i think both of them are still available but they're really worth reading because it's a fantastic article but also if you love monsters there's no better magazine. They don't do any of the blood, bloody stuff. None of the modern right. stuff. Right. All classic monster movies. Oh yeah, I used to see those. I used to when I went to the comic book stores growing up. You would see all those scary Fang, all those scary magazines, yeah. and it was just like, ooh, gross. Who's buying oh. all this stuff? But I, I, they were they've been around. Oh yeah, they're fun. <laughs> I mean, I love, I love all that that schlock and 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 gross and what I'm open. I'm very open to all that stuff. Well, um, but it's cool to have someone celebrating classic Hollywood monsters too, because uh, you know, hey, it's uh, that that is some of the original. That those are the origins of cinema. I think of Universal Studios. I think of, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a it, it talk about exciting the imagination. And back then, oh yeah, that stuff put people in trances for years, I'm sure. Well, and Greg, no one was more hypnotic than Bela Lugosi. Yes. Bela Lugosi, both in Dracula, but also in the movie he did about a year later, The White Zombie, uh, which is lesser known. But man, Bela Lugosi was absolutely hypnotic on screen. <laughs> yeah, no, no. He, he, yeah, definitely love those old actors and Hollywood movies. And I even love, look, you're a hypnotist. You're a magician. But also, now you're a ghost trancer, or I guess you <laughs> yeah. have been. Um, yeah, you have this book coming out, uh, Ghost Trancer, A Hypnotist Among the Spirits. Now, here's what's interesting. For a long time, and I, I guess not even for a long time, but one of the criticisms that some people have when I interview a psychic or, or a paranormal experience or UFOs, whatever, is that... It's a delusion. And when I think of delusion, then I go, yeah, well, that, that, that just seems like maybe it's a heightened trance state. Um, and there might be something to be said about going into trance and being able to access the astral realms. I do think that's a part of it. But 
Um, for you to go around and say, hey, no, look, I've had these experiences and I also know what hypnosis is, that's intriguing to me. Um, yeah, well, can you talk a little bit about that and, and, and how you would differentiate uh, those things? I mean, you, you, you're sure you weren't in trance? I'm absolutely sure. I have so many adventures. And even back to my grandfather in the coal mines, uh, he had experiences uh, that saved wow. his life. The, the stories will be in my new book, but I'll share one really cool story with you um, that you could probably relate to. So in Las Vegas, uh, the West Westlake, Westlake, I think it is now, but it was the Hilton Hotel where Elvis performed and everything. In fact, I saw Elvis 15 times in concert. He was fantastic. But um, I, there, I always did a conference there every year for fair industry because I work at a lot of county and state fairs performing. Um, so one year I was there and in that hotel at one point, they had what was called the Star Trek experience, which my son and I are big and my daughter too, were all big Star Trek fans. In fact, in later years, my daughter and I actually worked with Star Trek folks and we had lunch with Shatner and all these people. That's and awesome. <laughs> yeah. And across the way was uh, Barbarine from I Dream of Genie. It was really wow. cool. Another story. But anyway, um, we, um, I was coming out one night, the last night of the convention, as I always did. I stopped at the experience, the Star Trek experience, to pick up a souvenir for my son to take home to give him as a present. He was a little guy, you know, young. And so maybe eight, I don't know what he was at that time. So anyway, I picked up the souvenirs. I, I had them in a bag that said Star Trek experience. And so then uh, I came out of the door to go to the car garage. And mind you, it was a very cold night. The wind was blowing. People don't realize this, but Vegas, you can have snow and ice there. So it was freezing. So I was standing there waiting to run across the cars. You know, I had to wait my turn. All of a sudden, a person next to me, a young lady, and she says, hey, I see you were at the Star Trek experience. And, I, and I'm 6'3", so she was, you know, about to my shoulder or something. Then yes, I, I go there every time. My son and I, at that time, it was my son and I. My daughter hadn't yet been born, Ilea. My son, Wesley, though, um, who was named after Wesley Crusher, our next generation. My daughter was named after Ilea from the motion picture, which is now in its 50th anniversary wow. coming up. But um, I love it. <laughs> yeah. But in any case, she goes, I saw the, I see you Star Trek experience. I said, yes. She goes, well, you know, I, I was on Enterprise, which at that time was the current series with Scott Bakula. So I said, oh, that's awesome. I wish my son was here to meet you. And then a big car came by and almost kind of felt like it was going to hit us. You know, it was really close to the curb. Went zooming by. I looked, had to watch it. I looked back. She was gone. Now, mind you, I figured she went back inside because it was freezing out there. So I didn't think anything of it. I got in my car, drove down three and a half hours to home. My son was waiting up to get a souvenir. And I gave him a souvenir. He said, Dad, we got the latest Star Trek magazine. I said, oh, how cool. So why don't you read that while I'm opening my presents? So I, I started going through it. On the last page was an obituary. And I kid you not, it was the photo of the woman I had just talked to three and a half hours earlier. What? Her name was M Michelle Waymeyer. She died at about age 30, something about 34, 35 from a, I don't know if it's heart issue or whatever, uh, very young. And I had just spoke with her and she was in the obituary. She had died like three months before that or two months before that. What? And, and it wasn't like a translucent figure. It was. It's like you and me talking right now. What? Now, look, I don't know. I, and again, I don't want to give away too much of this book, but. That's okay. You, it's a, it's a seventy thousand word book. There's lots of stuff. <laughs> I mean, do you? 
I know some ghost hunters, people in the paranormal field, they they differentiate between the different kinds of uh, spirits and they classify them in different ways. I mean, is there do do you have some sort of uh, theory around why this person came to you in this form? You know, um, as I say, it started out with my grandpa and it goes into that in the book and why I think it skips a generation, but. I think it's just something that I've always, in this situation with her, I wasn't a ghost hunter at that time. Uh, I had even not, not even thought of ghost hunting, and yet it just happened to me. So I think that certain positive personalities, maybe, it's like uh, we draw that to us somehow. I don't think it's something I, you work at. I think it's just something that, you know, it's just within me or it's spirit around me. And it just was drawn to me. She was drawn to me that night. Um, I don't. I don't, and there's other times I, I encounter spirits in a, in a traditional way, using equipment, uh, the devices, all of that, when I want to go out and specifically attempt to do it. But there's other times that are just organic where things like that happen. I'll give you one more example. A year later, my buddy, Greg Bennick, who's a juggler, world-class juggler, I'll be working with him in April again. Um, uh, we were in Vegas the next year for that very same convention. And we had gone back to our hotel, uh, the Sahara across the street from the Hilton, and sort of the caddy corner. We were going to see Kreskin that night, actually. And we were coming out of the hotel to go to the parking garage. It was another cold night. And there's two shafts, two uh, elevator shafts, going up to the various levels of the parking lot. The right one was closed. There was two ladies on the left holding drinks. We said, can you hold the elevator? We're in, we got it. We're in a hurry. We ran up. They sort of stared at us. The elevator door closed. We pushed the button and opened immediately. They were no longer there, but their glasses of liquor were sitting on the ground where they were standing. What? We got in, went up to our level. When we came out on our level, they were standing in the corner of the parking garage staring at us. We immediately got the creeps. We ran. Greg says, let's get out of here. So we ran. We got in our car and we took off as quickly as could. Last time I saw them, they were in my rearview mirror. But they were just as solid as you or I. Holy moly. Okay, that is that is very freaky. Uh, this, is no, this is the truth. As I, I'm a Christian, I told you, as God's my witness, these things happen to me. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, so wait a minute. Yuri Geller, magician or actual psychic? You know, he may not even be aware of his powers. He does a lot of magic stuff. He does a lot of magical... I think he uses a lot of magic techniques because he doesn't have trust in his own abilities. But I think probably he was drawn to that because he might actually have abilities. And sometimes they may actually work for him, but he can't control it. Interesting. What about Kreskin? Is it all is it all conjuring? He tells you right up front. It's not he doesn't say it's all magic, but it's he's he says like ten percent of it is is yeah. some other ability. No, he uses he uses techniques that you can learn, but he does yeah. it so he does it so brilliantly, and he does it in a way that I don't know if you ever watch this TV series from Canada. It's really great. I would recommend you getting it off Amazon if it's still available or off eBay. Um, they have highlights of his TV series. He had a series up there for years. Yeah. And, and you'll watch him, and it's just amazing what he can do. But again, he uses magic techniques, um, uh, but in a way that it's so clever, you would, you never associate. Now, sometimes he does all-out magic where he attributes to, you know, certain magicians but other times the things he does are so couched in the way he presents them even magicians don't realize that he's doing magic you know 
Interesting. Yeah, because, uh, okay, and, and this is why I'm just curious about your views on this, Michael. I mean, uh, obviously being a believer in Christianity is already taking it a step beyond where Penn and Teller would want you to be, uh, probably several steps, but not that. Oh, I, I have to respect Penn. For years, they were against Christianity, and they were very mean to Christians, but Penn in recent years says, you know what, even though I don't believe in it, I appreciate that you want to share with me because that means you care about wanting to help me so hmm. he's going to change his opinion not necessarily being believing in god but respecting those of us who do that's interesting yeah no i was gonna say i mean they used to crap on kreskin all the time because yes. claiming of these i mean they're they're so anti-people bsing with psychic powers um you know in the magic field and this is why i was curious about a hypnotist among the spirits yeah. um to houdini a magician among the spirits right right and houdini who ultimately was very skeptical and and right. never from from what i can tell unless there's some document i don't know about um even died well, believing not never really believing that any of the psychics that he encountered were legitimate but i know right he didn't but because he never encountered one that was but also think about this when he died he gave a code word to Bess, hoping he could return and he was yeah. hoping that, and it never did happen sadly but also the seances they put on to try and bring Houdini back were done by magicians and they weren't the right environment. If she really wanted to contact him, it wouldn't have been in one of those stages, you know, on the top of the Roosevelt Hotel. It wouldn't have been. And that's not where you encounter spirits. Where it would have been is if Bess would have been back where they lived or where it was important to him with just a handful of believing people that really wanted to try and reach him. Um, doing all those staged um stage seances they were doomed to fail before they even began yeah well look and, and, and here's where i want to uh, circling back to penn and teller for a second and, okay. and, and this is just me really trying to understand where you're coming from um okay. as somebody that watched their show on showtime bs and and for yeah. a long time was super super anything supernatural i said james randy was an influence too anything supernatural was bs that was just like and i know it's a I, I acknowledge now there is a arrogance about the scientific position and the materialistic position, but I mean, what would you say if Penn and Teller were to sit down with you, you, they read this book and go, Hey, Michael, look, you do hypnosis. We all know that there's a lot of tricks involved. You do, you're a great magician. Um, you know, what, what is this stuff? Is this really, uh, what, how, how can you, um, believe this i mean do, do, do you have a defense to their skepticism you know again it goes back to that dangerous dunger saying you know for those mm. that believe is necessary for those who don't no explanation will suffice and they are for whatever their life experiences they they believe so strongly in their belief system that um all i could say to them is all i can tell you is it happened to me you yeah know? That's, that's what it, that's what I've learned in this show. It's I can't deny I don't know how to prove someone's experience is well, just like you can't scientifically prove hypnosis. You can't right. scientifically hypnosis exists. It's a phenomenon. It's not a science. So if you believe hypnosis can happen and it does happen and we know that, then there has to be other things that can happen equally as well that you just haven't experienced because you haven't been open to it or been in the right situation at the right time. Yeah. Do you, I mean, uh, you know, sort of to, to tie this all together, Yeah. where do you think 
hypnosis and and understanding magic uh, lines up with the field of ghost hunting and, and just exploring the paranormal in general. What is what is your view on how those connect, if they connect? Well, you know, I always hate that term paranormal. Because I think, mm. I think the, the spirit world is as normal as our regular world. It's just that we don't see it because most people don't take time to be quiet. Most people won't sit somewhere and just be quiet and turn off everything and just be within their the you know room and be quiet and wait for something to happen. They're too they're too busy. They're too they don't have the patience. And so I think it comes down to I think it's all normal. It's all normal world. It's all part of our world. And if you're over in Asia, they would say that because their world is supernatural world is the same as their regular world. It all exists, you know, in in tune. So. Um, the term paranormal world has sort of been devised to make people think that it's a separate thing and it's not. Um, and as far as being a Christian and the, throughout the Bible, they talk about supernatural experiences and, and uh, appearances of spirits and the raising of Lazarus from the grave and all these things. So it's not out of line with God either. I mean, people always ask me because I also have ex had alien experiences that, well, then doesn't that say that there's no God, you know, if there's aliens, well, God is an alien. He wasn't of Earth. He was of another place. And Jesus was a hybrid, as a matter of fact. He right. was part, part human. So is God, in fact, is an alien. So depends how you define alien. Is it little green men or is it God and, and another existence out here? And he created what we have here through his abilities or science or whatever, and his love of wanting to care, create what we are, and then wanting to inject his son by having a hybrid to experience that so that he can understand what our life was about. So, you know, aliens and God are not different either. They're not disparate concepts either. Do you think they have a role, seeing a ghost, um, seeing extraterrestrials? I've read theories about this. Do you think mm -hmm. they have a role in exciting the imagination? Well, sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, um, Aliens could very well be angels. You know, it's just a different term, right? Right. So the aliens we experience here may be angels that work for God, who is an alien up above us, you know? Um, and does that mean that everything in the Bible is false? No, it actually fits the Bible perfectly. If you look at it, if you look at it through a logical sense, I mean, we're talking about supernatural. We're talking about these angels that don't exist here. We're talking about a being beyond us that created the planet. It all fits together. Yeah. Yeah. No, I guess the way it does work is that these are the these are forces that we don't fully understand. They inspire right. wonder in some ways. And yeah. and, uh, you know, that it definitely even though you may have not been in some <laughs> trance state where false things were coming through, uh, it certainly makes you more open to other ways of being that are uh, largely Mind, I mean, the mind is everything. Consciousness is everything. Yes. Uh, so seeing a ghost being there, I mean, what else What else can be possible? What else can we create in this earth? Oh, there's always, I've, and you know, I've talked to very, very stable airplane pilots that have spied lots of UFOs. And they've had experiences with them in, in, the, in the air. They haven't reported them because they're afraid they'd lose their pilot's license. But they're, they've seen them just like as solid as I've seen those spirits, the ghosts in Vegas. I mean, it all hooks together, probably. Uh, I don't yeah. know about 
don't know about cryptoids and stuff. That's a whole different thing. But they may too. You know, I mean, we talk about Bigfoot. It could very well be part of that whole picture too. I mean, it could all. It's just that world might be all hooked together, but we just see it in separate patches, or people see it in separate patches. So we identify it separately. But maybe they're all hooked together. Yeah. Wait a minute. I got to ask you one final thing. I realize you're into classic movies. Oh yeah. Black and white. Your Michael yep. Mesmer, your photos, your look, it's got the Mo Howard haircut. What is up with the hair? <laughs> How well, did you was, create this? I love this hair. I, I think it's very, well, it, it definitely makes you stick out. Well, I, I look at it more in a different way because I was a big fan of the Beatles. And I, oh, met, yeah. John, I met John Lennon. Uh, I also was a big fan of Bruce Lee. And both of them have the same haircut that I have. So uh it's not really mo howard i don't really care for the, the three- <laughs> yeah i know that, that's my cultural ba- i mean i grew up with the stooges yeah, so where you make that connection but i was more inspired by the beetle haircut and all of that now you look like a rock star and and i'm very curious to see your show that isn't uh you know gag necessarily just uh you know people thinking their genitals are running across the stage or or the person yeah, next I, to them farts I, I, Greg, I'll tell you a quick scenario. I have 18 different themes in my shows. I'm working on two more now. But for instance, I have one where they're motorcycle. They're on motorcycles. They're bikers. We're heading to Sturgis. During the drive, all sorts of crazy things happen on the motorcycle. They jump a bridge, all these things. Then we get to Sturgis, and they're being served by biker girls. And they um, you know, use the same ideas. There's only certain basic concepts. We apply them to that story plot. And at the end, they're entertaining the bikers as river dancers. And so it's a theme yes. it's a musical, and it's a beginning, middle and end, like a musical or a theme or a play. And so they play these characters and everybody does everything. I don't focus on one person. Everybody on the stage is all doing it all at once. So it's a group thing. Um, and it's not, oh, this guy's really good. So I'm going to do a lot with him. No, I don't do that. It's everybody gets their spot in the spotlight. Everybody gets to show their friends that they're awesome on stage and everybody has a positive experience. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was the thing at the, yeah. And to tie, to close the loop at the beginning of the show, I always thought, why shouldn't a hypnotist, stage hypnotist, do a full show that is time travel themed, where we just keep going back to different periods? Why not do a full show where it's an imaginary wedding or something? Um, uh, Yeah. Some of my other themes include um, I do a survivor game show with river rafting and going some of them, I have another one that's, um, uh, well, I have a lot of them, but I have another, it's a Wild West show. It's like Blazing Saddles and Raha, and they ride horses, they jump. They that fight. is so fun. <laughs> and they, they end up doing, being in the saloon and being saloon dancers. And, you know, so I, I, they're all themed shows. And I once I go into my theme, I stick with that the whole show. Nothing changes. And I keep them theatrical. So when I'm at a fair where it's like four or six days, I never repeat a show. Every show is a different theme. Oh my gosh, Michael Mesmer, you did, you did, you did this. I thought I came up with this, but you did it first, and I'm so glad you did because that that is more of the show I want to see these days for sure. Um, yeah. Well, look, everybody's going to check out Michael Mesmer. Uh, we'll, we'll link to your websites uh, for sure, as well as the book, as well as the articles where people can vote. Um, tell me this: a lot of people say that hypnosis. They see a stage hypnosis show and they go, oh, they're all faking it. Do you have a story from one of your shows over the years that could not be explained by this person acting on the stage? Surely you've got something. 
Well, you know, um, more on doing hypnosis on street stuff, really. Um, I was up in an airplane on Southwest Airlines one time, and we were going out of Dallas. There was a thunderstorm really bad. And there was a lady in the front row that had the bag. She had a wet, a wet towel on her neck. She was bent over. She was about ready to let it go because the plane was going up and down by 10 feet at a time shaking. And I said to the flight attendant, uh, is actually to the um, stewardess at that time. I, I've been around a while. But um, I said right. to the flight, uh, flight attendant, I said, look, can you go tell her and her husband or the gentleman next to her that I can help them? At that time in Southwest, they had seats that faced each other. Okay. And he was sitting opposite her, facing her. She went up and told him, I said, look, why don't you excuse him to come back? He said, yes. So she, I said, excuse him to come back to my seat. I'll come up to his chair and uh, see it and I'll work with her. So I, I put her in a street trance situation. Uh, I had her hypnotized in seconds and spent about, oh, five minutes with her. Afterwards, even though the plane was still going up and down shaking, she was drinking drinks and, and liquor and having fun and laughing in the middle of this storm. And everybody on the plane up there said, can you give us some of that? We want some of that too. <laughs> I said, no, one per flight. But what I did was I simply twisted her mind around and realized every time the plane moved, that meant it was working perfectly and made her more comfortable. Wow. That is, this is the power of this stuff. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So Michael, I mean, I'm just now struggling to think what, what will even be the title of this episode? Look, if we, we covered magic, we covered hypnosis, we covered, uh, you know, uh, shamanistic performing. We covered magic uh, in in horror films. We covered real life ghost encounters. I mean, exciting the imagination is one thing, but all those things that you've devoted your life to, how would you sum it up? Um, probably, I call myself the phenomenist, and that's probably it. It's uh, phen Let's see. Yeah, I love that. Probably something like unexplained phenomena explained. <laughs> yes, you gave me the title. Thank you. Um, no, no, yeah, that's so cool. Yes, the phenomenist Michael Mesmer. Such right. an such a great interview. I I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, yeah, I, I hope to have you on again in the future. I love I love hearing the showbiz stories. So that's uh, I a lot of showbiz stories. We'll do that. Um, I want to tell you, Greg, this is probably my favorite interview, and I've done hundreds of them since COVID started. Uh, podcast and everything this is probably my favorite of all of the ones i've done oh my god that means so much it really yeah. does it was awesome awesome well hey look thank you again and uh yeah excited keep doing keep doing those signature shows that are yours because you got um, it we need it we need it in the community i very much appreciate you michael thank you thank you Michael Mesmer. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Did you like this podcast? If so, let me know. Go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash open loops. Again, ratethispodcast.com forward slash open loops. Rate it, leave a review, share it with your friends, share it with your foes, share it with your foe friends because let's be real these days we don't believe in labels enemy ship is on a spectrum too
I love you. I really do. Talk to you soon.